0: Got in that. Do my little clap for my sink. All right. And are you comfortable? You look like. Did you move your monitor? Or did you move your seat? Are you comfortable?
1: Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't I be? I'm a fighter <laughs> aviator. The universe revolves around me. Of course, I'm comfortable. <laughs>
0: okay. Excellent. All right. Oh, um, supersonic sausage patty laydowns.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: do we want to start. Do we want to start with a story, or should we end with a story?
1: I'll start with a story. Uh, I was there, although it wasn't my idea. So no shit, there. Oh wait a
0: minute, wait, 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 wait. Let me introduce you.
1: Sure, do whatever. Okay, no, no,
0: no, no. Start with the story. Let's let's start with the story, and then I'll fade to black, and then I'll do the intro. Okay.
1: Okay, great. So uh, I was in Saudi Arabia uh, on my first uh, operational deployment. So this was in 1991, 1992, um, winter time frame, and it's boring. It's the desert calm time period. You know, we're flying over Kuwait. We're not going over the Iraqi border. We're not flying armed. Um, You know, we are going around and we might occasionally have accidentally violated Iranian airspace uh, because we didn't understand the Navy code words. That's another story. I mean, really, who knows what mustard alpha means? Not us. Um, And so one morning we were at breakfast. And one of the neat things about uh, the chow hall was that you could actually get pork products. Um, I probably haven't so- told the story about the time I smuggled 10 hams in Saudi Arabia, but we might get to that someday. Um, and so we could get, you know, pork sausage and Darren Colarusso. Now father, Darren Colarusso, uh had gotten a stack of pork sausage patties and he couldn't eat them all. And he just decided, man, this was too much. And he pushes the tray forward. And there is Spike Benichick. Now, Spike is one of our more brilliant and more offbeat weasel pilots. I mean, he is a fantastic guy, a highly knowledgeable aviator and really good with aviation history. So he knows certain things about the F-4, like how we originally got chaff on the F-4. So in Vietnam... Um, the F-4 did not come equipped with chaff. I mean, that was a bomber thing from the Second World War, and the F-4 didn't have any, didn't have dispensers. But when the speed brakes, which are on the underside of the Phantom, they're hinged at the front, uh, and when they're fully closed, there's a gap between the inside of the speed brake and the underside of the wing, which has some volume. And so some random neutrino comes sailing through the universe and hits the right brain cell, and Spike thinks... Oh, I know what I'm going to do with these. So he grabs the sausage patties, he wraps them in a napkin, he walks out to the airplane, briefs the crew chief, and stuffs them into the speed brake gaps. So he loads up his speed brake with pork sausage. He takes off um, and flies. And, you know, by this deployment, you know, this was my second deployment in 1992, we were now flying over Southern Watch. So we were flying armed and we were flying over Talil air base and spike decided that he is going to do a supersonic 20 degree sausage patty lay down on Talil air base. So he does it. I mean, you got nothing better to do. The phantom can go supersonic with harms on board and, uh, uh, hits the speed brakes. Presumably the sausage patties come out. He flies home. He post flights. The sausage patties are gone and a new hobby is born. <laughs> so for the next week, we're all ordering sausage patties for breakfast and we're wrapping them in napkins. We're walking out to the airplane and we're stuffing them in the speed brakes. And every freaking day we're doing a supersonic sausage patty lay down on Talil Air Base. And eventually we had to stop because there were complaints made by the Iraqis, I think not because of the sausage patties, but because we were booming the, the town and the air base. And there's actually some historical artifacts. Uh, you know, around Talil, Um, and they complained about the sonic boom. So, you know, sausage patties, the only people that ever actually found out about this were like wild dogs out in the desert who are walking along and they sniff something new and they go, wow, it's my lucky day, a dust-covered sausage patty, it doesn't get any better than this. Um, And that was it, supersonic sausage patty laydowns, 1992 time frame over Talil Air Base. And I was there, but it wasn't my idea.
0: Star Baby, welcome back. Thank you for the um, in, in entertaining um, introduction. Appreciate it. Yeah, good thanks, to see you obviously.
1: Again. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: <laughs> so so we are, um, we're doing part three of our Wild Weasel series. And so for anybody who's listening at home, if they haven't already, go and check out part one and part two, where we've already covered from the Vietnam era onwards. So we talked about F-105, F-4C, and the development of initially the well AGM-45 uh, arm and then the, the Shrike, and then we've moved on to talk about in part two F4G and the AGM-88 and then the employment of that combination very successfully in 1991, the deserts of Iraq for Operation Desert Storm. And that's where we're going to pick up here. So I guess the first thing then to ask Star Baby is having had that success with the pairing of those two things in Desert Storm, Uh, the success of the electronic triad, which was the EC-130, and then the EF-111 and the F-4G working together to suppress the enemy air defenses, and in some cases, of course, destroy those enemy air defenses. How did the Air Force respond to that? What was the Air Force's uh, plan going forwards?
1: Um, The Air Force's plan was to get rid of everything old because it wasn't cool, and because there was no leadership who understood what had actually happened and cared. So let me explain the EC triad, the electronic combat triad. So that consisted of three elements. Um, there were the F4Gs, who were your primary shooter element. There were the EF 111s, who were unarmed um, and were designed to jam enemy radars, acquisition radars, early warning radars. They used uh, a derivation of the ALQ 99, which was in the Prowler in the Vietnam era. It was upgraded. So the bomb bay was taken up by the ALQ 99. And I know you have an episode flying the EF-111, so that's covered in some detail. The third portion of the triad were the EC-130, and there's a couple of variants of EC-130, but this one was the compass call. And this is a C-130 airframe with a cheese grater on the tail. It's got an antenna array that, no kidding, looks like a cheese grater, um, and which can actually come on and off, and it's got antennas sticking out every which way, and bars here and bars there. It looks like... Some kind of crazy redneck welder got into a junkyard with a C-130 and started sticking stuff on. But everything there has a reason. And it's got a bunch of folks in the back. And their job is to get the third portion of the air defense network. And that is to jam the -the over-the-air comms and the navigation systems. So um, if it's an enemy radio, uh, air defense radio, uh, they're going to go after it. If it's a data link, they're going to go after it. And this airplane has some ridiculously powerful jammers on it because you're obviously not going to fly a C-130 in with a strike package. And and you're going to sneak around the edges of the battle space and you're going to let the your electronics uh, do the work. And all those little electrons are going to sail out and do their evil little things to enemy communications. Pretty darned effective, pretty capable. It's gotten more capable over the years. But that was the only part of the EC triad that the Air Force uh, kept, because what we ended up with is we had the 111 airframe, which was getting kind of old, and the Air Force had not invested in upgrading the ELQ-99 quite like the Navy had. And this was after the Gulf War, we, we started looking at the peace dividend. You know, the Soviet Union has fallen. We just kicked the Iraqis. We can get rid of wildly, insanely successful capabilities because we don't need them anymore. And um, we managed to hold on a little while longer than after the Gulf War. I mean, the F-4G and the EF-111 didn't retire till 96. But that's because the secretary of the Air Force kept them on when Merrill McPeak, uh, the the chief of staff of the Air Force, decided that they were old and they had to go. Um, It was crazily foolish. And to make things worse, the... Air Force did not have good replacements. It wasn't like they were getting rid of an older capability and hosting it in a modern aircraft. What they had was they had the F-16 HTS harm targeting system. And the the officers that ran that uh, and oversaw that program got enamored by what is honestly a really cool piece of technology. I mean, cutting edge at the time when it was fielded but that it crammed down your sensor suite into a pave penny pod, this small little pod that goes on the side of the F-16. And that simply does not compete with 52 antennas and 25 line replaceable units and an EWO. Um, in, in, and if you were to have a list of all the possible things you would want in a system, the harm targeting system was better in one. Okay? And the F4G was better in the rest of them. Uh, but that one was believed to be important, and we had to get uh, the we the Air Force had to get rid of the F F4 four because F fours were old. They were old tech. The fact that we were the most experienced fighter squadron in the Air Force didn't matter. The fact that we had a higher mission capable rate than any fighter in the Air Force didn't matter. We were old, and we had to go. There was a program, and literally everybody expected that the follow on Wild Weasel would be an F fifteen G. And McDonnell Douglas had a program called Headhunter, where the designs had already been made. Uh, And uh, what you basically did is you put a flat plate antenna on door three left and another one on door three right, which are up in the nose. And then there's a little door on the top right in front of the pilot's HUD. I don't remember what it is. And an antenna plate went there. So you ended up with 270 degrees of coverage from the nose. And then you use the tail booms, where the electronic warfare equipment is uh, housed in the Strike Eagle, and you covered your backside uh, with additional equipment down there. The project was called Headhunter. Headhunter still exists under a different name. So Boeing acquired McDonnell Douglas, and they have proposal right now with CAD diagrams. I've gone over them with the guys to take the EA-18 Growler suite and put it in a Strike Eagle. Uh, And the Air Force has never been interested because they have never had to worry about the advanced SAM system. Uh, And, you know, the F-15EX, the biggest, baddest Strike Eagles ever built, with the new electronic warfare system, might very well make uh, a more than adequate weasel But the Air Force is going to have to then dedicate the training and buy some platforms when they're not defending the state of Oregon against the onrushing red hordes of doom. Um, So that's kind of where we were. And so we were always a sunset system and and being a sunset system sucks. Um, We would have liked a new radar. Uh, We would have liked Norton APG-76, which was on Israeli Phantom 2000s. That that had a capability that was a color, three-dimensional synthetic aperture radar that could detect and classify a number of targets, including rotating antennas. That would have been awesome for us. But the radar was not capable of supporting AIM-7s. And... So we didn't get that. The Germans upgraded the F4s with AMRAMs and APG 65s, the radar from the Hornet. We didn't get that. We could not get an upgrade for our chaff and flare protection uh protection, which was next to nothing. So we were just left with software changes. And we, you know, again, our software guys, they were freaking awesome. Uh and we got some software changes to the system, but we're talking soft care, software changes. Like my digital watch has more and better software than some of the things that they were uh, changing. So, and I have a Casio, this is not an, this is not an Apple watch or anything fancy. So there was a notable, people still talk about this who were there. The commander of Tactical Air Command, uh, General Mike Lowe comes to the O-Club at Nellis, you know, and I'm there at Nellis and I'm a young aggressive captain. And uh, he gives this kind of rambling Mike Lowe kind of speech where he says, you know, maybe that we'll keep the weasel for a little bit longer. Um, but he, he's at the end of it. He looks around the audience and he says, are there any questions on anything? Now, I did not get the first question out because my weasel buds were holding me against the back wall of the banquet room in a club. And so another officer stands up and asked if Longshot was going to replace Gunsmoke. Those are two weapons competitions. And the answer was, no, it's not. And by this time, I've elbowed all the dudes away from me. Um, and I step forward and say, Mike Petruca from the Weasels. And immediately, the frag zone around me clears. So I'm standing in this empty circle of doom that's probably 10 feet across in a crowded ballroom. And I said, General Lowe, seeing as how the F-4G has reached a point in its lifespan where we can't even get money for a simple self-protection upgrade, is there any future in this aircraft, this mission, or are we just going to be left to die on the vine? And there's dead silence. And the first thing he says is, next question. And there's this kind of nervous laugh around the room. And then uh, he tries to give a rambling Mike Low kind of answer, which which actually gives us a bit of false hope that maybe somebody does care about the weasel and there is some future in the mission. Uh, but no, that was actually not true. And so I went from the O-Club, you know, back to the squadron where I had three different field gray officers chew my ass out, um, you know, including the 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 commentary on tone is that that is not the tone of voice in which an O3 engages an O ten, 10 you know, and the, the, the four star commanding a a major command, Uh, you know, so it wasn't necessarily the right way, uh, but it wasn't necessarily the wrong way. It was just the star baby way. Um, And that was kind of me as a captain. Uh, And so in 19... 96, the F-4G went away. We knew it was coming. And the assignment guys started handing out assignments to go other places. We sent a bunch of pilots to the F-117. We sent a handful of folks to the strike Eagle. We sent people to other jobs. And then there were six EWO slots that came up and were given to our squadron commander, Jim Yukin. Uh, Yuk, who is the, we refer to him as the doctor of EWology. So it's very rare that the squadron commander is hands down the best aviator in the squadron. But our final squadron commander, Jim Yukin, was hands down the best aviator in the squadron. And he had spent his entire career flying every model of Phantom, except for the year they forced him to go to Maxwell Air Force Base for Air Command and Staff College. Uh, otherwise, he was a flyer. He's a backseater. He was just fantastic. He was you know, one of those guys that I will always look up to. Uh, because not only was he capable, but he was a good dude, he was a good commander. Um, so he handed out six strike eagles. I got one of them. And off we go to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. Seymour Johnson in 1996 was a swamp surrounded by pig farms and racists. And not necessarily my favorite place in the world. But that's where four strike eagle squadrons are. And at the time, two of them were operational. One of them was a training squadron, and one had just converted from being operational to a training squadron, the Eagles. And so we show up, a bunch of weasel guys, bunch of time, none of us with less than a thousand hours, I think every one of us instructors. And mixed in with the, the FTU class is a bunch of F-111 guys, all talented none of them less than a thousand hours all of them instructors and we have a brand new training squadron who is doing their first tx course now the long course is a b course and it's designed for it's six months long it's designed for new people and you would occasionally put experienced aviators so i think our first EWO to go to the strike eagle out of the 561st fighter squadron was Scott sleeper sleepy sleepy went to a b course he got to spend six months in seymour learning everything he needed to learn the short course was about three and a half months, to TX. So we have a, a new squadron just switched over to training, and they get this TX class filled with a 1,000-hour dudes with combat time over Iraq. And, you know, a couple events kind of set the stage. One was the BFM ride, Dennis Malfer, Malf, again, one of my favorite pilots. I've mentioned him before. Melf is sitting in a briefing and there the instructors are about to draw out the BFM and how you do this. And he holds up his hand. He says, stop. You don't need to teach me the basics of BFM. And that kind of set the stage for how this class was going to be viewed. And I remember another case. So my crewed pilot was coming out of a 111 and F-117 background. Uh, student pilot with, is uh, in the same way that I was a student EWO because uh, you're all students again. And he had no air to air experience. That's not what he'd done in the background. So we briefed up an ACM rod and air combat maneuvers is a 2v1. And, you know, we're part of the two, and you have one bandit and you practice coordinated attack. And they brief it even though the weather is marginal. And they try, then they go out and we try and fly it between weather decks, even though we briefed we weren't going to do that. And Phil does very poorly. Uh, like you would expect. I mean, the whole deck is stacked against against him. And we came back and they start debriefing as if it had been an effective ACM ride. And they thump the guy like a baby seal. And at the end of the debrief, he steps out of the briefing room. Everybody's going to leave. And I let him out and I close the door and I turn back around to the instructors and I extend the debrief and I give them an extensive verbal dissection of how their instructor techniques sucked, okay, and how they were inappropriate and how they had just thumped a dude with no experience like a baby seal. So again, here we are, uh, an experienced class, not willing to suddenly behave like we're the new guys. Um, Part of that is ego. Part of that is we do have uh, experience. And so we were just not the best group of guys to sit back down and be the meek students and try and be the information sponges, which would probably have been the better approach. Uh, I just don't think as a group we were capable of it. Uh, I certainly wasn't. There was no freaking way. Uh, So anyway, we went on and I got uh, assignment to Lake and Heath and. This actually set the stage for later Strike Eagle successes because a lot of Weasel EWOs ended up at Lake and Heath in the late 90s. So we had me, we had Judy Garland, uh, we had Scott Schlieper, uh, You know, we had a number of guys who were very talented, who had been instructors in the G model, uh, who understood SAM suppression. And so the Strike Eagles suddenly got an infusion Of guys who knew how you were going to deal with SAMs, even under conditions where you did not have harms. Because, of course, the F4G planned on delivering a bunch of different weapons Uh, from cluster bombs, which are dumbass, totally worthless weapons and always have been, uh, to Mavericks or something stupid like that. And now we had a day-night capability in the Strike Eagle so that knowledge base was now resident. so when we did the the sam kill which was the 494's first uh, sam kill in the late 90s that was all executing a plan that the weasel ewos and pilots from earlier uh squadrons had put together was in the wing weapons book so when we executed the attack against the sa3 in mosul at the end of 1998 That was all something that the squadrons, the two squadrons at Lake and Heath had literally been training for years because we got this infusion of knowledge. So as much as we talk about systems, the most important part of the Weasel mission is the crews. And so we had a time frame under which the crews were available. They were in a new airplane. They knew what they were doing and opportunities kept popping up.
0: So. Go. Oh. Can I can I pause you there for a minute? Yes. And just go back a little bit in time then. So and um, we'll come we'll come back to where you are at the the point in time where you've got to Lake and Heath and you have this experience. Um and for anybody at home who's sort of thinking about um where this is going what what you're going to end up doing um is showing us some video of some strikes that were flown by the 494th at Lake and Heath, and presumably the 492nd as well, in, um, the, well, I always call it the Balkans, but former Republic of Udo- Yugoslavia territories uh, during the 1990s. And then, of, of course, we've referenced the, the Mosul strike in Iraq. So that's where we're going to go with this. But I do want to just come back a little bit to the interim period before the F 4G went away. So in part two, we talked to, I mean, Baser, talk, but, uh, Baser talked about flying um, hunter killer missions with F 16s out of Turkey during. Desert Storm, Spangdalum during the early '90s then had a mixed force of F-16CJs, which is the we- the Weasel variant of the F-16 with the HTS that you've referenced, and F-4Gs.
1: Let me what? let me correct you on that before you finish the question. Go the on. The force at Spangdalum was Block 30 F-16s, not CJs. Uh, they did not okay. have HTS. Carry okay.
0: on. All right. Okay. So 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 what was then the handover period? And, and I and I recognize what you've just said. About the most important thing not being systems, but being people and knowledge and um, you know that, that sort of wisdom and capability that, that those things bring. But what was the handover period? What were you thinking? Because you said there were nine, there were ten criteria for HTS, and it was only superior in one of them. What was that? What was that criteria? Can't what did tell you. you really? Th- you can't tell me, okay. What, what, so what did you really? What were you really thinking about it? Were you thinking with this system? And this person, that airplane won't be able to go out and be effective as a deed or or a seed platform. What what was your take on what was replacing the F4G?
1: Oh, my take on it was that this was this was a huge mistake. Now, the 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 official term that general officers use when they talk about not replacing a capability or slowing down a capability delivery, they talk about We're going to accept some risk. Now, you have to understand what what accepting risk means when a senior officer says it. It does not mean that that specific individual is accepting risk. What that individual is doing is avoiding career risk. And when they accept risk, it means they are offloading risk on the some poor schmuck down the road who is going to have to deal with the consequences of the decision that is made. So because of the drawdown and because the Air Force really dumped electronic warfare in one chunk, okay, they just dropped it after the Gulf War uh, and decided that it was a Navy capability in the Air Force, with the exception of the EC-130, the Air Force wasn't really interested in it. And so the center that supported us with General John Porter at Eglin Air Force Base, that went away. Um, we lost our senior EW advocate and we lost just all that expertise. And So I felt that the F-16 guys were being handled this ball of goo that they were going to be fighter aviators and they were going to give it their best shot, but they hadn't been given the tools to try and do the mission. And so by accepting risk, it was essentially putting the force at greater risk uh, because you were ending up with a system that, that did not have the capabilities. And in many respects today, you know, a quarter century later still does not have the capabilities that the F-4G had. Um, Admittedly, again, they're not carrying around all those those black boxes. Uh, So that's how I felt about it then. I still feel that same way about it now. And I tried to bring a brief into the Army-Navy warfighter talks in 2000 or 2001, and I was scheduled to give a brief and through some air staff maneuvering, Uh, The brief I was going to give, which was talking about the dissolution of Air Force defense suppression capabilities, was overrun by a happy, happy, we're great, rah, rah kind of brief uh, given to a bunch of admirals that never changed anything. It just said, we're all right. So that's, we were accepting risk. Or more accurately, again, risk was being offloaded on the future aviators. And when the O'Grady shootdown came around, I was of the view that that would not have happened if an F4G had been there. In retrospect, it absolutely would have happened because the tactical execution on O'Grady's part was fairly poor. But at least there might have been a chance of getting some revenge.
0: Oh, can you dive into that a bit?
1: So. When you look at the the shootdown, uh, what you find is a lot of maybe the Serbs did this, maybe the Serbs did that. What you end up with is a piece of radar warning gear that was regarded as close to fall, uh, prone to false alarms, and was probably displaying the wrong signal. Um, so continuous wave signals are. Difficult to tell apart because they're continuous wave signal. It's not like you have a pulse train. So, depending on the frequency band, that's how you need to, to sort out. So, is it a clamshell, which is continuous wave? Is it an hawk Is it an SA5? Is it an SA6? Well, whatever was being displayed on the radar warning receiver was not SA6. It was another continuous wave illuminator. And it was ignored by the pilot and he ate an SA6. Uh, so I felt at the time, had there been a more intimidating seed presence in the part of the F-4G, that he would not have seen uh, a bunch of false alarms as the radar came up and down because an F-4G would have hammered it, uh, and having correctly identified it in the first place, even if it was not being correctly identified by the system. So, a big step down in capability, and without getting into comparing various lengths of one's reproductive organs i would put the f4g's ew suite up against a modern system for capability and that includes f22 and f35 across its band within ewo uh the whole works i'd be happy to match them uh you know an operational environment point for point system was that good
0: so the the obvious question so one of my rules on this channel is not to um challenge too strongly because ultimately I'm asking people for their opinions, which is what you've just given me. But are you are you familiar enough with F thirty five capabilities, F twenty two capabilities to really make that assessment? Or are you are you sort of having to fill in some blanks in order to 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 come up with that opinion?
1: Yep, not gonna answer that question either. <laughs> Can't
0: Okay, so let me ask another question. Um, going back to uh, the decision by McPeak to remove these old aeroplanes, let's say. What role did the Air Force's love for, let's say, stealth or low observability have in the removal of these aircraft and then ultimately a capability? In other words, did the Air Force think it could do this because it had proven very successfully with the F-117 they could go into the middle of an IADS, put a bomb down a, you know, an IOC or you know, through the, the, the roof of a communication center, whatever, uh, fairly, fairly much with, with impunity. Was, was that a, a factor? Was that a consideration?
1: It was definitely a consideration. I don't know how much of a consideration it was. We saw slides at the time trying to sell stealth capability in the B-2 where you had this list of 80 aircraft. You, know, you showed a whole desert storm kind of strike package on one side of the slide, and you said, this is what you need with old airplanes. And then you'd show two B-2s, and this is what you need with new airplanes. But of course, in Allied force, that was complete bull. You had the B-2s on the left side, and you added in the 80-some-odd guys on the right side in order to support them. And you put them on a different air-tasking order, so you had the U.S.-only ATO that not only could the NATO allies not see, but the U.S. guys flying on NATO strike lines couldn't see either. So we should have conclusively determined in 1999 that that whole stealth rules was not going to be it. Uh, and there was no no real reversal. That was not the wake-up call that I had hoped it would be at the time. And, you know, an F-117 went down. And the the guy that did it, Zoltan Dani, who I believe is has retired from, I know is retired from the uh, Serbian air defense and is like a baker somewhere in Serbia. The guy explained how he did it, and he was simply exploiting the physics, uh, and he knew the physics. The physics are not classified. Uh, we essentially, I don't want to say stole, um, but certainly took advantage of Soviet research in the field uh, in order to get the 117. And of course, the, the faceted stealth design was something that the, the Soviets believed could not fly. And it could not have flown without a four-channel fly-by-wire system.
0: Can you dive a little bit into that as well? Do you remember it well enough to give a brief explanation of of how then he exploited the physics? What was he doing?
1: Oh, okay. So there is a light and radio frequency waves scatter in much the same way. And when physicists talk about scattering you know, we talk colloquially about bouncing a radar off a target, okay, but what that really is is backscatter. It's energy that is scattering from the target back in the direction of the of the receiver. And one of the things about radio frequency physics is that there is a form of scattering called my scattering. Uh, it's spelled M I E, and that means that if the wavelength of your object is longer than the object. You will get backscatter regardless of whether or not you're actually reflecting anything from the object itself. So you can have, uh, let's take a a yoga ball, something about a meter in diameter. And it is a perfect stealth black body. It is never going to reflect a radio frequency wave. If your wavelength is longer than that meter in diameter, you will still get backscatter from it. So this kind of thing has been known about light since the 1880s. And the RF knowledge was there. The Soviets had written about it. The Americans had worked on exploiting it for other programs. Uh, There was plenty of writing in open sources, particularly after the Gulf War. This was the case. It's just physics. And so the Zoltan Dhani, uh, as the regimental commander, had a spoon rest radar. And a spoon rest radar is a VHF early warning radar. And he had had time to realize that it's a good chance that his VHF radars were going to be able to generate returns if his guys were looking for them. And particularly if he could catch the Americans repeating their flight paths over and over again, he had a good chance of uh, bagging a stealth aircraft. And that's exactly what he did. And it's the same battery commander that shot down uh, Lieutenant Colonel Goldfein in his f 16 so it did it with SA3s. The SA3s, the system, as I pointed out, it's it's a nasty system, uh, but it is in the band where stealth should have worked the best against a target tracker, uh, and it worked well enough to shoot down an F117, and then get an F16 later. So that's one of the things about the reality of stealth is there are physics boundaries that are known and exploitable that's one of the weird things about stealth is you know people talk about radar absorbent coatings and that great stuff 90 percent of your radar signature reduction is shaping okay radar absorbent material definitely gets you something but it's mostly on the fringes and the lower frequency your radar gets the thicker your ram needs to be So perversely, it is easier to make a B-2 stealthy than it is to make an F-35 stealthy because the B-2 is bigger and you have to have a really low frequency radar in order to get the my scattering effect. And that's very difficult to actually have a very low frequency radar that's going to do the job in the first place. So it's all physics. But if you believe that stealth obviates the need for electronic warfare, and you are prepared to ignore the lessons of 1999, you end up precisely where we are today.
0: Before you describe where we are today then, let me ask why keep the EC-130? So they dismantled the triad in the form of getting rid of the EF-111, F-4G. Why was the Air Force, and, and, and you know outsourcing that capability to the Navy, let's say, why keep the compass cool?
1: I don't know the answer. I have two suspicions and they are no more than suspicions. This is pure supposition on my part. One is that there was no other joint capability that could fill its place. So we could not put the fig leaf of, well, the Navy has prowlers in front. And the second is the congressional delegation from Arizona where they're based is very powerful.
0: Which is a peculiarity about the way defense contracting works in the states, doesn't it? That you, if you're if something's going to be built in your state, then you're more likely to prevent or based in your state. And then, well, I suppose it depends on whether or not you, your communities support there being an air base or support there being a, a manufacturer there, but it has a big bearing.
1: Right, exactly. It has a huge bearing, uh, and that's what the F thirty five program uh, was deliberately constructed that way to put suppliers in every. Uh, state Well, 48 states, I believe, so that it would be an impossible program to kill. That was a deliberate program construction tool that worked like a champ.
0: Wow, I didn't know that. Um, very,
1: I mean, the guys at Lockheed from a program management side, they're very good at selling airplane programs. I mean, you can look at the Lockheed bribery scandals that got the F-104 into Europe. And yeah, OK, so they were illegal, but it was still brilliant.
0: Okay, so so let's let's get back then to maybe let's do this in reverse chronological order then. So so what's your précis of where we are today, and then let's go back and start and talk about then your arrival at Lake Aneth and what was happening geopolitically and and within the sort of old weasel community in terms of transferring that knowledge to to the strike eagle world. So what what where are we today in terms of
1: where we are today is we're rebuilding our electronic warfare capability. And I don't have good insight into how that's being done. Uh, It's going to be a very difficult thing to do because the knowledge was lost. I mean, the last, the senior ranking Weasel Ewo was Judy Garland. And he retired a number of years ago. I was the last, I think, Weasel Ewo in uniform. Uh, So I don't know where the knowledge base is going to come for rebuilding electronic warfare. I think a lot of mistakes are going to continue to be made in that process. It's a tough rebuilding process. I think that we are maybe not as far back as we were relative to the threat in 1965. But I would say we're not far ahead of that. And one of the things that makes this even more difficult for the Air Force is the idea that we would never go to low altitude again. And I've written on this. you know I've got a couple articles. Uh, at War on the Rocks, warontherocks.com, all one word, uh, that talk about uh, the nature of seed. Uh, I think I did a series called Stuck on Denial, which talks about the five stages of grief and where the Air Force is on its seed process. And and if anybody's really interested in tracking that down, they could read those. They're 3,000 word bites, and I lay it out, and there's pictures. So
0: They're really good. And, and I, I'll link to them in the description so people can find them.
1: I think we're stuck on denial. And what you see in Ukraine is, watch some videos, look at how low the Ukrainians are flying to avoid the SAM threat. Okay? They're flying low. I'm seeing helicopters at altitudes of less than 30 feet. And regularly, I fly in the daytime at 50 feet. I did it yesterday, where you're looking up at nesting birds. And it's not as low as it seems when you're at 60 miles an hour, which is the regime that I'm testing in. But when you're at 110 knots, that gets a whole lot lower. You have low time to impact. And I'm seeing Ukrainian fighters posting video of them flying very low altitude. And it's one of those things that we're going to need to make sure that we do not lose the capability to do. Because it's going to be a combination of low altitude and electronic warfare and skilled aviators. That are going to defeat the next high end air defense system, because when you look at the advanced systems used by both Ukraine and Russia, they're doing pretty well if you try and go up and mix it up at medium or high altitudes and they're doing less well when you stay low. So that's where I think we are now stuck on denial rebuilding.
0: It's interesting you talk about being how far sort of ahead or behind the curve you are relative to '65. I, I, my knowledge of history from that period is not that strong, but I, I think that was around about when the first F4 was shot down by an Sa2, and of course prior to that, the, the Taiwanese U2s were being shot down, um, and and uh, you know there was Gary Powers, and we so we knew we knew as in the West knew about the SAM threat, but nobody had really done anything about it, and and so then when that first F4 was shot down in around about 65, something like that, by an SA-2. I think everyone was, was sort of surprised by it. So hopefully we're we're not close to where we were um, back in, in those days, uh, and we are a little wiser, a little bit further ahead in, in terms of having technologies and capabilities to defeat these systems.
1: I have hoped that for years, but I left the Air Force not believing it was true. Because every time I got to peek under the curtain, I thought, oh yeah, surely they've hacked this problem. And I got a whole long series of uh no, damn it. I'm not even sure that the problem adequately really exists. So I don't want to be a doomsayer. Again, we have, you know, well-trained crews and plenty of smart guys who are working this problem, but I do not think we have an appreciation, nor do we have actual combat experience. We flushed all of that down the toilet after the Gulf War. And we Yeah, you know, I was trained by some of the guys who were Vietnam era crews. We learned lessons from guys that flew f105s in Vietnam were our instructors. I mean one of those lessons f fours by the way burn. Why is it important in your when you're doing f4 conversion training why is it important to learn it f four is burn because f105s exploded and the guys that were telling us that wanted us to know that f fours burned they did not explode after taking battle damage so you could afford to stay with your f4 long enough to get to Laos or the Gulf of Tonkin where you could bail out unless your flight controls burned through or it got too hot in the cockpit and then you just had to go but even silly lessons that you won't find in the tactics manual I mean what is phantoms burn phantoms burn critical tip
0: let's go back then to the mid 90s so you you've you've got to lake and heath it's you and a bunch of other sort of crusty old well, i say crusty i mean you the the picture in, in the background here that's from around that time period you said you're a senior captain it is said, that's 99 you, you were 32 years old there i'm not trying to look like star baby by the way for anybody who's wondering and this is star baby in in, in a, an f-15e with some gbu 24s loaded up on there the bruise um so but that's so so, the, so, so let let uh, me allow you to continue that story then so can i ask the f- the first question then is so you've got a bunch of f111 guys who've gone to the f15e you've got some f4 guys who've gone to the f15e did anybody look at you and appreciate the knowledge and the experience that you were bringing to that airframe or were you just starting from the beginning again this is a new aeroplane we're going to learn how to go and do loft deliveries, low altitude, laydowns, toss, you know, LGB stuff, or, or was somebody saying you guys have this corporate knowledge around weasel, deed, seed, we need that documented, that's going to become part of the syllabus or our doctrine here at Lake and Heath, we're going to have days where we go out and train to that?
1: Both. So we still had to learn to fly the aircraft. We still had to learn the new capabilities. We had to learn the new systems. Although the Strike Eagle makes that relatively easy. I mean, compared to the Phantom, I mean, come on. But, and a lot of the knowledge, because these are both McDonnell Douglas products. So certain things you learn, like uh, when you're at high AOA, when you've got the stick back in your lap, you don't move the stick left and right in a Phantom to roll. If you try that, you end up with adverse yaw. You actually roll with a rudder. Strike Eagle does the same thing. Keep your stick back, keep it centered, you roll with a rudder at high AOAs. There are certain flying characteristics that are common, uh, but we still had to learn those. But I won't say we had instant credibility, but there was instant recognition that we had knowledge at Lake and Heath when we we started trickling in there. And part of that, the guys that arrived early, you know, I I arrived behind the leading edge. Guys that showed up earlier than I did, they kind of built the cred for the rest of us because they were sharp dudes. So when I came into the squadron at Lakenheath, I started doing a couple things. When when I was at FTU, I already had written mission need statements for the replacement of the radar warning gear and the jamming system. Uh, because I came out of a, a system where the electronic warfare capability was great. And I went into a, a strike year where the radar warning system was garbage in 1996. So I wrote the... Urgent mission need statements, but I was told you know by a one star at uh, ACC headquarters if it wasn't an f twenty two they didn't care about it, which turned out to be largely true nevertheless we we got out there and we started having an immediate impact on tactics, we had good threat knowledge, we had some good weapons knowledge, uh, we understood how we were going to be supported by other harm shooters, so we really had good package integration knowledge uh, and The F4 guys and the 111 guys brought some additional skills. So, for example, strike eagles in the 90. That was, we'd already taken some hits in training. And one of the big hits in training is we didn't do enough live munitions drops, and we didn't do enough munitions drops writ large. Um, We had slacked off on that to save money. But we were still flying around 300 hours per year. It makes a huge difference. You fly that kind of time, and your sorties are 1.1s, 1.3s, 1.8s. If you go up into Scotland, that's real solid training time. And and the UK is a good training environment, and we have plenty of other NATO nations to do other training with. Uh, it was good. If you spend the kind of money on readiness and flying your airplanes, if you can, if you you know invest in the spare parts to keep them flying then you have well-trained crews and you can train them in a bunch of things. So in the 90s at Lake and Heath, there was too much. Nobody was going to be qualified in everything that we did. Unless you brought that qualification from another Strike Eagle unit or from inside. So for example, I was not going to be an instructor and a nuclear strike guy, Pui, and a uh, you know, close air support guy and an AGM-130 GBU-15 guy. Uh, there was no way. Um, so I had to prioritize what I was interested in. And I was interested in being an instructor because, again, remember imposter syndrome, right? Uh, So I've got to work my way. That was the thing that I uh, thought was most important. And the guys coming from the 111s had already used GBU-15s. So we'll talk about those in a bit. But GBU-15s and AGM-130s, those guys were fast-tracked for those systems, obviously, because they already knew how to do them. So I ended up, you know, on the Wing Commander's Certification Board for Nuclear Strike, TUI, um, which is a way of actually avoiding um, extra work. I don't want to digress into that. Ask me about that someday. We'll talk about my one and only nuclear strike certification. And the guys would go and do the GBU 15. So I ended up with, eventually, I became an instructor. And I was also a close air support guy, which wasn't much. Um, But we did get some good work with JTACs over Bosnia. And, you know, an instructor for, you know, a CAS instructor so that I could pretend to be a JTAC on the radio. We didn't have any handy. And AGM-130 was not my thing, but we had guys that covered this wide range of capabilities and we incorporated the experience from other airframes and brought them into the Strike Eagle. We also had a couple of Eagle guys who popped in who taught us something about the radar and taught us about how to use the radar and helped start the idea where, I mean, the the in the nineties, the backseaters were very protective of the radar, okay? You, you know, I run the radar. Now, until we get within visual range radar is mine you know the stick monkey up front fuck off that's a dumb way of doing business right because there's gonna there's only so much i can do in the back and i think i'm a stud in the back seat at least i was in the 90s and i can run the radar with my right hand and the targeting pod with my left hand simultaneously there's a fraction of us that can do that i don't know how big it is uh and that's a lot of fun and it's very useful, but there's also times when I need to pay attention to one or the other. So what I want to be able to say to the front seater is your radar and the front seater takes the radar and I don't have to worry about it because the front seater knows how to operate the radar. We had a couple of C model guys come in and teach us how to operate the radar. The one thing we were missing is nobody knew how to strafe because the Strike Eagle did not do strafe with a two degree upcanted gun.
0: Although the C-model guys had done it in Desert Storm.
1: Yes, uh, but the it was it was a no-strafe kind of thing in the Strike Eagle of the time. It was too darn dangerous, and we really didn't do strafe until Junior Short, who's a former A-10 pilot, needs to lay down 20 mike mike on Roberts Ridge, and the fact that the F-15E didn't strafe and that he'd never strafed in the F-15E did not concern him, and so... He proved that you could do strafe and that you should do strafe in the F-15E, and now it's a thing. that's, but a, that's an example.
0: That, That's enduring freedom, isn't it? That was Afghanistan in 2002?
1: One or two, yeah. Yeah, Got a, so he got a silver star for it. And uh, well-deserved. Smart guy, you know, had the right skill set. But that's an example of how the Strike Eagle has, I think throughout his history, successfully acted as a melting pot. And it was certainly well-stirred by the time 1999 rolled around.
0: What? So one thing I find interesting, and you might not be able to expound on it if you can, great, but what were those C-model guys teaching you about the radar? I mean, you know, is it really that difficult to use that you haven't figured out how to use it in twiz mode or you know, velocity search mode or whatever? What are, what are they teaching you?
1: They're teaching you not necessarily what mode you're in, but perhaps how to manage your search better or how to manage your search better as a four-ship, or how to execute based on the radar picture in ways that you had not learned because you did not spend your life doing 4v4 air-to-air. Uh, it was not so much you know, teaching you something you didn't know. It was showing you things you hadn't thought of and improving your technique. And so you've got your bag of tricks and a C model of guys dump a whole bunch of stuff into your bag of tricks. And now I have more stuff in my bag of tricks. Um, me,
2: no,
0: sorry, I interrupted you.
1: It's one of the things I I found interesting when I was listening to uh, the sun setting the tomcat and the discussion of Phoenix ranges uh, with Puck and Puck saying, you know, well the Phoenix was only ranged this far, and I'm thinking to myself, I've shot simulated H build aim sevens; it ranges well past that. And because people hadn't paid attention to the profile of the AIM-7H because it was an old missile, walked into it, bagged a bunch of sea models over the North Sea one day. Really? First engagement only (laughs) because while we had briefed uh, which missile we were going to use, it was not used often enough in training. I loved H-build AIM-7s. What a great freaking weapon that was. So, that had, a of range.
0: So, so tell me about the range. I mean, you must be able to, to describe what, what sort of range you could shoot that out
1: then. Well, we could easily engage beyond 30 miles. And in fact, I have taken in 4v4s shots approaching 50 nautical miles with an H7H build. And that's part of the, again, you know, Puck talked about tactics. You take the long range shot when you think the guy's not going to maneuver. You know, who takes a 50 mile shot? I do.
0: When when you talk about bag of tricks, the obvious question that comes to mind, and I think I probably asked this a few times of, of various different guests, is at what point do you reach uh, saturation? So you've got so many different missions. You've it's quite insightful actually. You've just described how you'd have an AGM one hundred and thirty guy and a GBU fifteen guy, and you couldn't. You'd, so you pick your battles. You pick what you wanted to be good at. And um, that's sort of news to me. I didn't know that there was sort of that division. Uh, but I do ask generally the question, if you're a multi-role platform in a squadron that doesn't have a dedicated mission preference, let's say air to air versus air to ground, at what point do you reach a, the, the the sort of over overspilling of that bag of tricks to the point where you you're fumbling around and it you there's too much information, there's too many different options, there are too many distractions.
1: No, that and never how do you happens. deal with
0: that. It doesn't happen.
1: Not not in that particular mission sense, right? Because Uh, Your bag of tricks, essentially, it's a question of proficiency. So the important part, when you only have 300 training hours a year, which is a bunch and should be considered our minimum, when you have 300 training hours per year, you can only stay proficient in so many things. So you focus on things. And squadrons do this all the time. Like if you look at an F-16 squadron out of Aviano, not everybody's qualified as a FAC A it's a limited number of guys in the squadron qualified as a faca. Uh there was a time frame when squadrons would have a limited number of guys qualified in hts because you have to be able to maintain a certain proficiency in order to be effective at it. So it's not an in the cockpit moment of you become saturated because your brain can only handle so many things and you've overstuffed it. It's a question of how many things can you remain proficient at and what we could remain proficient at at 300 his ears, we could remain pretty good at air to air, and we could remain pretty good at dropping laser guided bombs or even dumb iron in a variety of deliveries. And then we had the nuclear strike, which we were good enough at, because it's a no fault. I mean, you got to be 100% all the time. Um, And then you just had to start spreading the lower probability things around. So the squadron as a whole, the 492nd, 494th, really good at air to air for a Strike Eagle squadron, really good at air to ground. We could do time sensitive targeting, but not all the crews could then do everything in the low numbers of the specialized weapons or specialized tactics.
0: And Specialized weapons would be something like an a g m one thirty
1: right or specialized tactics might be close air support okay um
0: and yeah. so you're gonna you're going to talk about that particular system in a minute, so let me ask you one more question before maybe you sort of pick up the the narrative and around the geopolitics and what's happening and how you ended up going to war and you reference that first shot in the Balkans but so you arrive at lake underneath, you have this knowledge you're um an expert in going out and killing or suppressing SAM systems. What did you think about then? You've just said, you know, you wrote up the requirements for a new RAW or electronic warfare suite, whatever. What did you think about how you would use the airplane to go and hunt SAMs or to suppress SAMs? What, what were your options? The
1: options were to gang up on people. That's where I started because the AGM-130 had not entered my consciousness because it hadn't really been fielded. Uh, then when the AGM-130 came on, I didn't need to actually do anything about that. The guys that were the AGM-130 dudes were, oh, yeah, 25 miles, make my day. And they went right into Sam killing mode. So I thought that we were going to have to do things old style. We would take advantage of numbers. We would, if necessary, go low, uh, and we would deliver what we used to call hard ordnance. So as a a guy flying the F4G, I'd said, man, I'm never going to deliver hard ordnance on a SAM, meaning kind of free fall ordnance, which is, again, easy to say when you've got a harm and when you don't have a harm, you're okay. Well, guess what? I guess I have to deliver hard ordnance on SAMs.
0: Okay, but what about so so that says two things to me well maybe 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 more on that but there are two things that makes me think the first is you've gone from having this very dynamic capability in the F4G because you are listening to the world around you and creating a picture of which systems are out there you have this very precise geolocation capability elevation capability thanks to the the suite the um
1: uh, the
0: uh, APR 47 uh, forty seven. Um, and now then with an F-15E that doesn't have anything like that capability and by the sounds of it you don't even you couldn't even really trust the raw that much or it would become oversaturated that's what I heard about it from Desert Storm it struggled with saturation issues um, you've gone maybe to a, a greater alliance on intelligence so you have to already know where the threat system is and if you're dealing with a mobile threat um, which I understand was particularly tricky to deal with during the, the Balkans conflicts, um, you then have a much diminished capability.
1: Yes, that's all true. And you had to rely on luck and knowledge. So, But we did practice it. And so I got a, a positive reputation when we went to Red Flag. And I was flying with Norm Peterson in the front seat, another good pilot and two weeks of red flag we did not get bagged by service to air threat yeah you know, the one time we got bagged was the same stupid mistake that red flag is designed to beat out of you which is turning back into an air to air fight with no situational awareness and eating a couple missiles as soon as you roll out in the opposite direction I and mean, we knew when we were turning back that it was a dumb thing to do we did it anyway cuz somebody's calling for help and we're dead uh but norm would say that actually my dental work provided an additional radar warning capability because whenever we got a tickle on the RWR, I would direct a reaction. It would be the right reaction and we'd defeat whatever was going on. That wasn't because I had, you know, radio frequency dental work. It's because I'd been stationed at Nellis. I knew where every freaking SAM system was. I might even know the dudes that operated it. So yeah. And I knew where the terrain was. So it's like, yeah, go, go South of Nixon peak, or let's skate along the, the edge of the container. That was all just tactics, and it was based on the fact that I had good intelligence. So what we were hoping for was better intelligence as the 90s rolled along, because Intel had really gotten a bad rep in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, because they had touted all their wonderful space capabilities, and whatever those were did not necessarily trickle, it, trickle down. So we were kind of banking on better Intel and hoping that harms thrown in by the hds guys were going to do their job even if it wasn't the best possible harm shot it was still a harm shot we still had defense suppression guys and we still had jammers around uh because we had we did have the prowlers even though they were a total pain in the ass because of their slow airspeed and the fact that uh um, they were difficult to keep track of because once they started jamming, they kind of turn into this ball of electromagnetic fuzz. You might have time talking to them. You might have t- trouble getting information from them. Um, they jammed their own onboard systems. That's just the nature of a powerful jammer, right? Electromagnetic interference. So prowlers were always, as a mission commander, they were always my hardest problem to deal with in terms of situational awareness. Uh, but. We had all the pieces together and we were confident and we had experienced guys and we had a good skill set. So in the 90s, we were about as well prepared as we were going to be for a service-to-air missile threat.
0: Who were you thinking of as the threat then in those days? So uh, you're, you're at Lake Anheath across the road from me and you're doing your you know, sort of wing planning or whatever it is that you do, sort of looking at potential conflict zones Presumably the Balkans were on your list of places. Absolutely. The go. Balkans
1: were constantly spinning us up and spinning us down. I would get pulled from an exercise as we were going to go. There was a lot of on again, off again in the late 90s. Um, but we also concerned about Russia, and you could not help but be concerned about Iran. Uh, North Korea, by the way, somebody else's problem. It had this giant somebody else's problem field over it, and that was not something that we you know, gave more than a... Uh, we certainly didn't give a second thought. We didn't even give give thought one and a half to North Korea, somebody else's problem. So the Balkans, the Iran, and to some extent Russia.
0: And were you specialized in those areas too? So you would you'd have a Balkans guy and a you know, a wrong guy in terms of the wing planning.
1: Not that I remember. Um, as the EWO, I had to cover it all, and as the EWO, yeah, we're, this may not have come out. I'm really into this EW shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the fact that I would cover everybody I thought needed to be covered, you know, Libya, whatever. If they had a radar, let's take a look at French radars today. I- I'm into that. So we had that advantage. I was a squadron EWO as soon as the guy who was the squadron EWO before me could dump it. Um, <laughs> and I became the wing EWO. And, you know, I had a bunch of really good uh, maintenance guys supporting me on the wing EWO side. So, you know, the, the the maintenance update programming side, that was done for me by a bunch of guys who were just happy to have a captain who would walk into the group commander's office if something was wrong, throw a hand grenade, and just smile sweetly and wait for resolution. Um, we were, it was a good team. A really, great bunch of of guys supporting us. Uh so, yeah, we, I, I don't remember being separated out into, you know, the Balkans team or the whatever. We were, we were kind of the fire brigade. And the, 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 the Liberty Wing in the late 90s, we were the fire brigade. Now, the advantage of this was we never had to deploy to Saudi Arabia. We got to deploy to Turkey. Why is that important? Because Turkey has alcohol. I don't drink, by the way, because as Chris Chalali once said, the last thing the world needs is star baby with fewer inhibitions. <laughs> but you know we're we go to italy we fly out of northern italy you know deny flight or allied force you know deliberate force we we've got italy you know where do i go if you want to do an exchange i go to finland in the summer i mean we were the the fire brigade and europe was a smoking good deal i mean yeah you had to live in england but you know you can't <laughs> you can't have everything
0: what what was happening then uh, one of the things that i always uh, you know my my brain kind of explodes well actually at the smallest thing my brain explodes but I, when i read the history of the balklands nations and i read the centuries of conflict that have been going on there and the, all of the different factions uh, i find it really quite puzzling that it's i mean apparently there's a there's an issue going on now with some saber rattling between absolutely um yeah two two nations there so Um, Kosovo and Bosnia, I think it is. Um, But what was happening from your point of view then geopolitically? What were you seeing there at Liberty Wing happening in the Balkans? And what were the early indications then that you were going to be going out and hunting sams?
1: Oh, it was bound to happen. So this was actually, I'll go back to college. So I came in on an ROTC scholarship, four years paid for, for mechanical engineering. And I, it's really just generic engineering because I changed out of mechanical engineering to aerospace engineering to avoid an 8 a.m. class three days a week. Because no matter what, you had to take ME30 and it was always Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 8 a.m. so I changed majors to avoid that, which didn't save me long because by the end of my third semester, I'd flunked out of aerospace engineering because I can't do a differential equation to save my life. So in the process of looking for a quick way to keep my scholarship, and graduate and you know go off to flight training, I I lucked out. There was a two and a half year scholarship program. And since I'd only I barely managed to stay above water for my first year and a half, I got a two and a half year navigator scholarship, approximately three weeks before the program was terminated. So again, I mean, if you're looking at my career as a long string of of good fortune, you're pretty much there. So again, good fortune smiles on me. And one of the courses I end up taking is comparative communism, because I'm now a political science major, which is interesting. And I took a whole bunch of Soviet studies, uh classes. Which of course you immediately think in 1990, two years after I graduated, flush your Soviet studies classes down the toilet. Well, I can tell you it's handy today. But one of the handy classes was comparative communism, and I had looked at Yugoslavia. So I knew who the players were and could explain it. And what you had was a multi-ethnic state that had been artificially tied together by, um, really, and maintained by a dictator, uh, Tito, and it had disintegrated. And all these ethnic groups, which have hated each other for hundreds of years and will never let a grievance go, we're going to split and go their own way. There are portions of the world that are like that. um, And I think Southeast Asia has some aspects of that. Um, Certainly the Middle East has aspects of that. But the Balkans or the Europeans, you know, we never let anything go. The fact that the Ottoman Turks did bad things to us in 1450 something, we are still pissed off about that. We're not going to let you forget it. So you cannot hold a artificial country together quite like that. And uh, Slovenia managed to to skate out of Yugoslavia fairly easily because they said, hey, we're out of here. And Croatia said, hey, we're out of here too. And Croatia was between Serbia and Slovenia. So they ended up sucking up all the fighting. Well the Slovenians just went to drinking espresso and smoking Cuban cigars. Uh or whatever else they happen to do when you free yourself from a multinational conglomeration. And of course, Bosnia is already, you know, uh, a province which is inherently mixed. And so you just had the old order trying to stay control and the dogs on top were the Serbs and other people saying, no, we're we're not we're not doing this. And it's funny when you look at the language groups, remember, it's Serbo-Croatian. But you have two different, you know, groups that teach that treat themselves legitimately as different ethnic groups. That don't get along, so that was U- U- Yugoslavia, and it had gone downhill. So in 1995, deliberate force had happened, which was a one-week, you know, ten-day kind of procedure. The 494th was in it. 494th went down to Aviano, it like bombed a bunch of targets, they threw GBU-15s out, uh, made some critical targets explode. Then we had deny flight. We deployed to Aviano periodically for deny flight and to get some quality food, because as uh, previously mentioned, we were stationed in England. And then then there was this nimble lion plan, and the nimble lion plan was an evolving plan to kind of repeat deliberate force with a selection of 100 targets It was gonna bring the Serbs to their knees. That wasn't gonna happen, okay? Uh, It was insanely optimistic on the part of the UCOM staff to think that the Serbs were gonna roll over after we blew up a bunch of stuff, uh, 100 targets. But the nimble lion plan was there. And that was, we were always on a short string. And I got pulled back from an exercise where I'm having a great time. I'm in Holland. I'm one week through an exercise and I've rented a bicycle and I'm bicycling around and and all of a sudden it's go home. Like nimble lion, like great nimble lion. Did we go, that was 1998. Did we go nimble lion? No, it was always this string. So we were always on this hair trigger for let's go up and, and go to Italy. Which is infinitely better than a hair trigger of "let's get ready and go to Saudi Arabia." So, really, not a bad deal.
0: So, w- when did you when did you deploy them to Aviano? You yourself? When was your first?
1: So, I had previously deployed to Aviano several times. I had uh, technically deployed for the deny flight period. So, I say I've been in the no fly zone. And deny flight has a specific time period that's listed. But it continued all the way up to Allied Force. Okay. Uh, as far as our decorations are concerned, and as far as collecting combat zone pay is concerned, it's a named operation. So I was down there a couple of times, including one time that was one of the most embarrassing professional experiences of my life. Is we, i I'm the chief of mobility at the time. I fly down as part of the advanced team. We're going to bring a bunch of strike eagles. We're going to do deny flight. I show up at an F-16 base and the F-15Es do not follow me because of engine problems. You know how totally fucking embarrassing it is to go to an F-16 base as a strike eagle dude and then not have your airplane show up for engine problems? It's humiliating. So we kind of slunk out of hour with our tails between our legs uh, and you know, understanding the point that the Air Force had not adequately invested in either of the engine troops who were who were overworked and undermanned or the spare parts need to keep our engine running. how humiliating. I've got two freaking Pratt Whitneys. Wouldn't happen if they were GEs. Anyway.
0: I was gonna ask so is it I I've flown the S16 Aviana. I can't remember what the engine is though. Is it are they using fifth using 42s or 40s? Um yeah, I no, it's they're block GE 40s. Engines
1: or... It's block 40s okay. so I think they're Pratt engines. Okay. Um, as a Phantom dude I'm you know a lifelong lover of general electric engines. And yeah. you know the facts wouldn't really matter, but the facts of the F-15EX is finally, it's got real freaking engines in it. Um, I think the Tomcat experience would have been totally different if it hadn't been the TF-30. The 111 experience would have been a total experience if it hadn't been a TF-30. Uh, I find the Pratt & Whitney dependable engines logo laughable. Although they, Pratt & Whitney Canada makes a great (laughs) turboprop.
0: How's that for a shit sandwich?
1: (laughs) Right, there we go.
0: Okay, so so introduce these weapon systems and and t- tell us about some combat. Tell us about going out and killing Sam's. All and right, let's talk about it, so. things
1: exploding. Okay, so we're oh. hoping that this is a recording because one of us is prepared for this. And strangely enough, it's me. All right, so we're going to share the screen for a little bit. We're going to go back and forth so we don't totally screw this up. Okay. Uh, let me introduce you to my friend, Mr. AGM-130. That's not an AGM-130. This is a GBU-15 and it's on, you will note, a Tizio F4. And in the underneath the center line is the data link pod. So the GBU-15 is a data link guided weapon. It is the follow-on to the GBU-8 Hobos from Vietnam, which was also a data link guided weapon. And the idea is that you take the blue thing, which is a practice bomb, a Mark 84, 2000 pounds of cosmic catastrophe wrapped in a half inch steel casing, you put a tail fin on the back and you put the seeker up front, and there's a radio link. So, what you are uplinking to that data link pod is the picture from the TV camera in the nose. And what you are downlinking from the data link pod is control input so that you are actually flying the bomb. Now, original GBU 15s had a pretty decent range, you know, 12 to 15 nautical miles, but no GPS assistance. So you were when you were planning a GBU 15 mission, you had to plan it like you were flying an aircraft for that 15 or so miles. And you had to navigate waypoint to waypoint from your planned release. Later, we got the EGBU-15s, which put a a GPS on it, but we didn't have any for deliberate force. And so the Strike Eagles used these for deliberate force uh, in the Balkans in 1995. That's where you start. And so this is what a GBU-15 looks like. Uh, the, The kit at the top, Uh, which you consist of the front piece, the back piece, and the waveguide and wiring that connects the two. And the bomb in the middle is actually a blue 109. It's a penetrator weapon. Again, 2,000 pounds, but a thicker steel casing, a different shape. And actually, um, it's 75% casing and 25% explosive, as opposed to your normal GP general purpose bomb, which is 50-50. So that's what a GBU-15 looks like when you assemble it. The data link pod itself, and if you look at the upper right here, you'll see that there's a GBU-15 in the AGM-130. The AGM-130 has a neat little addition, a rocket motor, which extends the range. We'll talk about that more in a second, Uh, but it's a rocket motor taken from, I believe, the AIM-7 and slapped onto a GBU-15. What a great freaking idea this is. But you have to have a data link pod. So the data link pod, you see in the lower left or on a jammer on the right, This thing that goes on the center line, it's called a a uh ANAXQ 14. There's actually another version of it that begins with Z. I didn't even know existed, that apparently we flew with. Um, and so you've got a horn antenna up front, you've got a PSA antenna in the back, so you've got 360 degrees. PSA is pattern steering antenna, uh, which had because it was more directional, had a, a greater sensitivity. We didn't just use that for. The GBU-15 and the AGM-130. We used it for what we called the RTS Rapid Targeting System, also known as Goldpan. So some genius thought, well, if you're gonna, if you have an uplink that is going to accept a TV picture, why can't I uplink pictures to the cockpit? And so what we had in a van, uh, in Italy, which is pretty much where it lived, is we had a transmitter. That simulated being a bomb, only much more powerful, tied to an overhead projector and a camera. So we could get packages of imagery sent to the airplane, and a normal package consists of five slides with one minute on each slide, which is a guy putting slides on a on a overhead projector, camera filming and beaming it up. And you would get the coordinates and a target description is written down. You had to copy it. Um, you would get a large scale map, a fine scale map, a large scale photo, a fine scale photo. And that was your charting package. And I don't remember being able to save it. So you had to do quick sketching on your knee board. You had to write down the coordinates and do everything real quickly. And it was a five minute package receipt, but we could get this past 200 miles. And so we could get imagery that had not been given to us at launch. This is gonna prove to be key in Serbia. Now, the obvious question for any fighter aviator is, Can you transmit porn to the cockpit using this system? And I've heard, I can't verify this, that you can, but there is no audio channel. So you miss out on all the music. (laughs) All right, enough said on that. There, DataLink pod, that'll come in later. That's an AGM 130 at the end of 1998 in a has in Insulik, Turkey. So after. Coors and Bud flight ganged up on the SA3. General Deptula decided the rules of engagement were still too tight. So the rules of engagement had been: if fired at, you can you can fire back, with uh without necessarily getting CFAC approval. He said, no, no, the the flight lead, the flight lead can determine whether or not you return fire. So that was step one. And the second step was. If you are fired on by any element of the air defense system, you may return fire against any element of the air defense system, regardless of whether or not that element actually fired at you. This enabled the AGM-130. So rather than have to be reactive and figure out where the guy is, you could take off with a known SAM site pre-designated for explosive doom in the hope that somebody would fire at you and you had an excuse to blow them up. So what we have here is we've got two AIM-9s over the top because the AMRAAM is too long. And if you look at the back of the bomb and the back of the AIM-9, you'll see that there's a fin problem. Okay, there's, so the AMRAM can't fit over at AGM-130. We have to give up the wing fuel tank. Um, it's a heavy weapon. So this is a live Mark 84. So it doesn't have that streamlined penetrator shape. It's kind of got this, you know, whale bud shape uh, with this, all the kit on and Mr. Rocket motor. And if you take a look at the other side, this is one of our weapons guys who is, no kidding, there with a Windex and a soft cloth, making sure that that camera is absolutely pristine uh, when the airplane takes off. And we had both infrared versions and TV versions. And you'll notice, and I didn't notice this literally until the day before yesterday, that seeker is canted down. It is not pointing directly ahead. So, and you'll notice in the background underneath the, we're still carrying two air ramps because we're a Strike Eagle. And I wanna point out, by the way, that the left conformal fuel tank in this configuration is empty. We can carry two more air-to-air missiles if you really want them. Uh, But it's, you know, it's a point of pride to have empty weapon stations when you're in a Strike Eagle so that you can kind of laugh at (laughs) F-16s. And that's the full loadout. You can't really see the pod, it's there, but it hides in the darkness behind the main landing gear. So two AGM-130s, four heaters, two AMRams, lantern. And uh, there we go at uh, the winter of 98, 99. And what our squadron commander, Warren Henderson, War Dog, uh, later called a roving motorcycle gang. So this was the, this suddenly became the Northern Iraq weapons test range where we had strikey old guys roaming around with a bunch of weapons, just waiting for excuse. So that's what an AGM-130 looks like just after you release it. That's a Lancer's uh, airplane over uh, Great Salt Lake, Utah. And now I'm going to show you just a quick video of the AGM-130 in flight.
2: No sound, I'm afraid.
0: Can you do the sounds?
1: Uh, No. I can only do J-79 sounds, and these aren't J-79, so it wouldn't be appropriate. So the missile's flying
2: along. Rocket motor's done. I don't know. A bunch of seconds. I'm not an AGM 130 guy. Whoops. I'm going to have to do that again because it won't pause when I want to.
1: So the AGM 130 rocket motor is actually command activated, it is also command jettisoned. So the Wizzo gets rid of this. Well, the rocket motor, when it's burned out, when he or she wants to.
0: Why would you you do that? I mean, and I get rid of it, I understand. But why would you command activate it? Why would you not want it to go straight off?
1: No idea. Notice it's good form to put the weapon in the hole made by the previous guy and you're always targeting a window or a door that's mental okay so um we'll go to the oops
2: can
0: you describe the mechanics in term, in terms of the hotas um the, there's a sort of terminal guidance phase isn't there so can you actually talk about what an AGM-130 launch looks like you just described firing the rocket motor releasing the rocket rocket motor what else are you doing as a wizard
1: so you've got a couple of profiles you've got a high profile which you'd use for range you've got a low profile um, which is kind of left over from the GBU-15 where you had to navigate yourself but the AGM-130 always had a GPS so essentially you're giving it a GPS coordinate to fly to and your hands off until that point the way you're controlling this weapon is you've got your screen up, you have a bunch of push buttons around the edge of the screen, and you're controlling it with your right-hand controller. Although if you were left-handed, you could use your left-hand controller. And the thumb, you're flying this airplane with your thumb because the hand controller in the Strike Eagle is has got this little thumb pad. It's not really like a mouse, that's how you steer it. And you can manually steer it. And at any point using the trigger, Uh, And this is important, particularly for the IR seeker. You can lock the seeker onto a target, and it will try and self-track. Now that I've actually seen the IR seeker lose a track when a previous weapon, an oil refinery shot, Uh, the previous weapon exploded, sent a thermal pulse across the field of view, which broke the lock. Um, But you know, remember, I'm not an AGM-130 GBU-15 guy, so the fine techniques escape me because I, I was never trained in them. The the rocket motor is commanded to release we actually have film of a guy firing an sa7 at an incoming agm 130 the rocket motor releases and the sa7 guides on the dropping rocket motor no way Uh, yeah it was and it was definitely an sa7 because it's got a very distinctive flight path so another look at the weapon that's uh sergeant mary Blyer, one of our weapons folks and now let's see if we can do some film. SA-3, Iraq. That was labeled as an SA-3. That was an SA-2 on a trailer. So what the, the Iraqis started doing in this time frame was putting SA-2 and SA-2 radars on trailers so that they can move them around more handily because it's a transportable squad or, or unit. It's not a mobile unit. So they put them on trailers but still had good enough intel that guys were killing them with AGM-130s. So just to look at that again.
2: Bang. Now we have another
1: shot. Uh, This one is an SA-3. Remember I told you in the previous video about the long shadow on the SA-3, which is how I identified it? Here we go. SA-3, long shadow. Bang, gone. Also on a trailer. Here we have the infrared version. This is not a 494th squadron shot. I have it labeled as a 492nd squadron shot. I think it's in Southern Iraq though. So my information on this doesn't jive, but it's fun. Uh, Particularly look from the center to the left because you will, apparently, you can hear an AGM-130 coming in. Remember, this is a
2: 2,000 pound bomb. Um, And you probably can't run fast enough to get away from it.
1: So that was northern Iraq. We got a bunch of training in. We killed a bunch of SAMs. We actually started dismantling the uh, air defense system in late 98, early 1999. And it gave the squadron good training because then we redeployed home and then we redeployed to Italy. So in December, I was in Turkey. At the end of February, I was in Italy and the 494th took over from the 492nd we became the 494th expeditionary fighter squadron which was most of the 494th and half of the 492nd and it was hosted in the triple nickel the 555th fighter squadron uh commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Goldfein at the time they were great hosts I mean here's an 18 PAA so 18 aircraft F-16 squadron has 36 two-place aircraft descend on them and their hospitality was awesome. They, you know, if they had a potluck uh effort, I mean the families put in extra effort to bring plenty of food for this this ravening horde of people who are really, you know, are interested in food because as previously mentioned they were stationed in England. <laughs> and so we had the NATO 50th anniversary air show. Now, what we've added in to this air show event is um
2: the rapid targeting system. And so I'm going to stop sharing for a second cuz I don't want to talk to this slide endlessly.
1: Under the the rapid targeting system, we can now get targets. So we we had planned on separating out the AGM-130 guys as a rapid targeting cell for operations in the Balkans and that's what they did. So they were constantly on normally airborne alert Now, there was some stupidity going on here because you're not carrying external fuel tanks, so you need to dedicate tankers for airborne alert. They go up and they fly over Bosnia and they wait for a tasking. And we have the radar, of course, and the radar is pretty good. And they're just waiting for taskings. And the tasking would come and the process would churn. And the insanity was, that it might take 72 hours to move this information up to a Strike Eagle, and we'd send the pictures, the package up to the data link, and these poor guys. But the chaos would not let them radar image, take the extra 30 seconds to radar image the target. They wanted to rush in at high speed and get the weapon off in case it moved. So you've spent 72 freaking hours, okay, moving this target through the process. You've gotten it up to the aircraft in a package that takes five minutes to transmit, and you won't let the Strike Eagle spend 30 seconds to radar image the target. What did this mean? It meant two things. One, that 75% of our AGM-130 shots in the time-sensitive targeting process were against empty holes. And the other thing it it meant is that job satisfaction among the AGM-130 shooters was so low, we had to rotate them in to regular strike lines so they could blow something up once in a while. Because I'm not counting all the times they went up there and didn't get a target and didn't launch, so it was a case of not, man, I wish I were an AGM-130 guy. It was a case of dodge that bullet. Um, so really, I mean, it was a skill set that that was highly in demand, was hugely useful, was a way we killed a bunch of Sams, and thank God I didn't have it. <laughs>
0: Did, was it explicitly identified then or specific, specifically driven as a Sam killing mission, that TST piece? Or or did TST mean that you could go against any kind of target? It could be a leadership target. It could be.
1: It was primarily almost exclusively radars. The times it wasn't radars was when we went and killed parked airplanes on the ramp.
0: Okay so 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 describe the targeting process then you've you've just said it takes 72 hours to get this package you know from a point where you they found the target's been approved whatever and it goes up to to the guys in the airplane but you must i mean again forgive my naivety or ignorance perhaps it is but you must know where their fixed sites are and if it's a mobile sam site then what good is something that was that is 72 hours old if it's a mobile it's an sa6 or an sa8 then
1: Great question. There were essentially no fixed sites. There were three inactive SA twos that they rolled out uh, middle of the war. We killed one of them, and they stopped it. Those we believe were decoys. They were probably not operational. They were not a threat that we had to honor them. There were no fixed SAM sites. The SA threes and the SA sixes flushed about twenty four hours before the commencement of hostilities, and we never saw them again. So all the places we thought they were going to go, they didn't go. And the Serbs, the Serbs had some great techniques. I mean, for example, so an SA-6 battery will normally have a straight flush radar on its own vehicle. That's everything in one vehicle, acquisition radar, target tracking, missile guidance. And it has four three-missile tells, transporter erector launchers called the Three Fingers of Death from their success in the Sinai in 1973. Well, what the Serbs would do is your radar only had two launchers with it because the other two launchers were at your next hide site. So if you engaged an airplane, you shot at the airplane, you shut the radar down, you drove your existing launchers off to get reloaded and you drove the radar to the next place a couple of miles down the road, hooked up with your launchers that were already there and already in concealment and you were ready to rock. Um, The SA-3s, which are not that mobile a system, they made pretty mobile and they moved them around all the time. So, yes, we have one case, and I don't know how accurate this is, but it's in the video I'll show later, where an SA-6 in the middle of a field is bagged, and we were told later that SA-6 had been sitting there for 10 days because the motor was broken. Really? Yep. Don't know whether or not it's true. I totally believe it. So, how useful is a 72-hour process against mobile SAMs? Let me take you back to 75% of all shots tasked were tasked against empty holes.
0: So, so, and describe then what your radar imaging would have allowed you to do. Would it have told you that that site was then vacant or that there was no vehicle there?
1: Mass of metal. And remember, certain masses of metal reflect the radar energy back very well, particularly masses of metal with antennas on top of them. Yeah. And uh, it would have said, okay, we don't need to take a shot. There's nothing there. Yeah. That's what it would have done for us. We'd have saved rounds. Um, and we'd have been av- that aircraft would have then been available for tasking another line.
0: But when you think about just the geographies involved and your operations in southern Iraq, northern Iraq, um, and the vast expanse of desert where the Iraqis could be hiding, and then you think about the much more condensed environment uh, of the Balkans. Um, you know, in, in particular, sort of Serbia and um, and and you know, sort of the individual nations that are there. There must be a finite number of places they could hide. Why was it so difficult to get to them? And presumably, if you've got two towels sitting at a site on their own, then that in itself is a, is a towel. It's 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 your indication that if you wait long enough, a radar van will be along. You know, the 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 sort of. You know, the, the, the brains of the operation will be along so, shortly. So if you just bide your time, you'll be able to get them all together.
1: Well, it's the nature of your sensors. So we don't necessarily have special operations teams running around. We don't have a history. All that history, the Serbs flushed it. They didn't go where they'd previously gone. So you've got to start from scratch. And most sensors are spot sensors. Area sensors can't find something as small as a mistletoe, And spot sensors cannot look over a wide area. And that's where when you look at a country level, you find tons of things that are just, it's easy to hide stuff. Uh, And it's proven to be ridiculously easy, easy to hide SAMs and SCUDs and so on. I mean, if you look at SCUD hunting, separate issue, but missile hunting, which goes back to Operation Crossbow in the Second World War, wildly unsuccessful. It is too easy to hide something, even something with the size and mobility of a V-2 too easy to hide in a country with trees and such. Now, one of the advantages of flying in March in Serbia was the leaves were still coming back on the trees. By the time you get to April and May, the cover, the amount of cover available to the adversary has exploded.
0: What about space capabilities? Then you referenced that earlier and you said they were a no show when it when it came when it came to desert storm and the things they said they can do you hear a lot of uh, naturally you hear a lot these days about space based warfare um the ability for satellites to shut down an iads for example over a given period of time and create a window for some strikers to go in and do their thing was there any uh space based capability in 1999 then that was giving you some steer as to where to look
1: Yes and no. Um, so there were definitely space-based capabilities, but again, in a large of cases, uh, we don't have 24 hour coverage and you're looking at spot sensors that have to be tasked. You do not have a satellite go over, take a look at a whole country and pick out the good stuff. Doesn't happen that way. Um so today you get lazy because we have commercial imagery. I mean, there is always A commercial satellite going over every eight hours that is willing to sell you pictures of all you need is a subscription and it's pretty darn good Uh, much better than what we had in the 90s I mean the the. The guys that envisioned satellite reconnaissance which remember initially was wet film where you had to drop canisters it had to be picked out of the air. It, you would just bring tears to their eyes if you'd show what a bunch of guys with a handful of dove can generate today that you can draw from the internet for $30 a photo or whatever it happens to be. So yes, there were space capabilities, but, and they were put to work. Um, but this is not the only game in town and there are other things that you might need your space to look at. So you're always battling for the availability of assets, even if they do have coverage. Uh, so they were definitely in play and they still led to you know the process and all the 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 production and the dissemination that all takes time and it took that we we were not yet good at and we were not as good at time sensitive targeting that we would later become but even time sensitive targeting today like you bag a terrorist on his balcony in Kabul uh you had a dude watching his balcony in Kabul on an airplane that was hovering overhead that the you know, the Taliban couldn't do anything about it because they don't have any air defenses. I mean, you get the wrong impression. It's hard to find things in a country.
0: Talk about, just briefly then, you know, it's a 75%. Um, I don't want to say miss ratio because that's not what you said. You said it was, they were just vacant spots or there was nothing there. How was your BDA conducted then? How did you know?
1: This? Ah, because with an AGM-130, you have a camera.
0: Of course. Yes.
1: Okay. Yes, our BDA rocks because we taped all of that. Yeah.
0: Okay. And so, and so, were you always going to be striking something that wasn't under cover? Then you talked about that tree cover. Was there a degree of faith expected? Were you given coordinates? What What were you?
1: It's maps, photos, where they had them. But I'll show you some video where they are attacking with AGM one hundred and thirty targets in cover. Yeah. All right, so we'll get to it. All right, so I'm going to go back to sharing now that I've, uh, I realize that my attempts to look thin on the camera <laughs> aren't working, so I might as well dump it. All right, here's where we were. All right, so this is a shot in Serbia. And, you know, what was great about... The end uh, of 1998-1999 timeframe is this is where the US and NATO were experimenting with releasing all this combat video to the public. So the vast majority of what I I show you, I pulled from the NATO website and archived as they posted it. I've been carrying this stuff around for 20 years. Okay. And this is, I believe, an SA-6 that we are told is broken in the middle of a field. And this is how you get your BDA bang wow. now one of the important things to realize and i'm sorry that you're looking at a, a really boring uh, bunch of static is that both wizzos in the two ship and both pilots are watching the video so the the first round is also your scouting round so the guy flying the round is under a lot of pressure to find a target and put it on target the guys not guiding the round are still watching the video feed and they can pick up all the things in the background So that's going to lead to this pair of shots. So this is a pair of shots where there are two targets in the field. One is the SA-6, and you're going to see the radar rotating as the bomb overflies it. And they're going to target the comm relay van. And the comm relay van has a door, and the door is open. So naturally, you have to put the weapon into the door, because that's the way this thing works. You will notice to the right of the door, there is a Serbian Air defense or comm guy smoking a cigarette, proving once again that cigarettes are hazardous to your health. Why do you overfly? Um, I think if you're given a choice between two targets, you always take the far target because if you explode the near target, then you've got a smoke problem when you target the second one. So AGM-130 cruise tasked against an SA-6. This is not it. Shoot, this is a spoon rest in cover. You're not going to see the antennas till the end game. Okay, it's an acquisition radar. That's the radar they used. Oh, we'll get back to the the one target or another. This one comes with audio, so I'm not going to talk over it. This is a church. And what it was supposed to be was a TIPSY 63, a US-built acquisition radar. And this one has audio. I had to get special permission from the Air Force to clear this for general release. Uh, But you're gonna hear the crew talking about, they're coming in and they suddenly see a church in the field of view.
2: It's like a tower. That's a tower, dude, that's a tower. Tower? No, it's a church, dude. What's that right there? I'm ditching this field. Wow. Those guys had
1: about nine seconds to make that call. Now, I've looked at this video time and time again. I looked at the original video. I cannot find a tipsy 63. I can find a couple blobs that might be a tipsy 63. So it's entirely possible the radar was placed near a church to try and bait this shot. And the guys made the call, you know, and within a handful of seconds, they determined that's a church and the Wizzo says, I'm going to ditch this in a field. And he ditches it in an empty field. Another advantage of the AGM 130.
0: Can Can you pause there for a minute? Just Just well, I ask you a couple of questions and start, baby. So, uh, the first is that we are on my. I've got a you know big monitor. I can I could see that quite clearly. But in the aeroplane, you're looking at it on a very small screen, comparatively speaking. How difficult would it be to make that out? Yeah, it's phenomenal. So, so, so that brings into mind then, uh, and again, I should have gone and read one of my books because I wrote about all of this a long time ago, um, before we did this. Do you think so? Was it, was it good enough to go back into print? <laughs> I think it probably was. Well, if you haven't read it, then then we need to. So, um, but but one of the one of the things you've referenced the fact that the U uh, S was keen to get some of this weapon system video out to the media. And I do remember there was some controversy, let's say over striking a bridge as a train went across it. And I think I've seen AGM one hundred and thirty footage of someone ditching a shot just like that because some civilian vehicles come into view or something like that during Kosovo, um, during, during the, uh, the Balkans conflict. But, um, was that something that weighed heavily on your minds? Were you because because one of the things that you kind of notice when you look at videos from Iraq, for example, of, of dropping bridges, you know, go, the the bridge gets dropped. If there's civilian traffic going over it, that's too bad. That's not a that's not a desired outcome, but it is an outcome. When, when you go out and you fly combat and you're doing this kind of thing, how much are you thinking about collateral damage and what is the um, Decision making matrix that you go through to decide whether or not to to ditch a shot.
1: Do your collateral damage planning before the mission. Um, in this case, this is a reactive shot, and the guy—it's not like a—the crew did not have a good target. They had one bad thing in the field of view, which was a church, and they had no other viable targets. Would they have hit if they'd identified a Tipsy sixty-three next to a church? Would they have hit it? I doubt it. I know the crew, and I think they'd have ditched the weapon, and I wouldn't have criticized them regardless of which call they made. Um, sometimes, you know the enemy can bait you, you know there's there's uh, human shields, you know, which is called morally hardening a target. uh There's a difference between deliberately targeting civilians, like the Russians do all the time, and then accidentally having a civilian enter your field of view in the in the end game. The guy driving across the bridge. You know, some guys are lucky, some guys aren't, but uh, if the weapon is released and I've got 10 seconds left to impact or however long and the guy drives when my field of view, it's not his day uh, because I I had to haul the iron all that way. There's a military objective to dropping that bridge. That bridge is going down, but I'll give you an example. So I I, I finally got to get a bridge in Serbia, lead backseater in a four ship at one end of the bridge. It's a two span bridge going across the river. I have video, by the way, but that will be another episode. The, the right side of the bridge, I don't know whether it was east or west, because I don't remember my attack access. So the right side of the bridge had a building, a house or an inn. Typically, it would be in an the inn at a bridge right up against the one end of the bridge. And so I wouldn't let anybody target the span close to that house, except for me. I was going to take the right span. Everybody else would take the left span. Uh... And when I planned, when you drop a bridge, you want to fly your weapons along the axis of the bridge so that a weapon that goes long or short still hits the bridge. It's a similar technique for runways. Um, I planned this drop, and we planned a lot of drops, to go 90% to the bridge so that any weapon that was not exactly on target would go into the water and minimize collateral damage. That's all done in planning. You give it your best shot. And there's a falsity that, you know, that the phrase surgical strike, surgery is still a messy, bloody business, right? And so there is no such thing as a surgical strike. You are employing high explosives against targets with a whole bunch of possible errors that can occur from human error to weapons failure to bad weather to winds to tons of things you simply cannot predict. Uh, And you have to accept that there's going to be unintended damage. Uh, And so I wrote an article on this um, called The Seductive Allure of Precision Weapons. And it makes it seem like you can control the battlefield to the degree which you cannot control the battlefield. People should never make the mistake of thinking that the tactical fight is that controllable. It's not.
0: I think a lot of the language around that as well originates with the media. I don't know whether or not it was initially planted there by military spokespeople, but I'm pretty sure that uh, pinpoint strike and yeah, surgical strike our inventions are inventions co- were coined by the media.
1: I think it's a circular argument whereby the media has defined things as precision and the politicians and leaders have taken that into account and you reinforce each other. War is a messy, nasty, ugly, destructive experience. And as much as I talk about, you know, how much fun I have in combat, I hate war. Hmm. Um, You know, it's just that if you're going to go into a fight, you might as well put the guys who are well suited to doing it and who have trained to become good at it. You, you've got to be good at it. If you're not good at it, you end up with the kind of messy sloppiness that you see most of the time. Hmm. Uh, you know, so as, as good as I was at combat ops, and as much fun as I had making things explode, never lose sight of the fact that you're orphaning kids, and you're ruining livelihoods, and you're putting people out of work, and you are destroying things that took blood, sweat, and tears to build. All right, so let's go back to sharing. Let's go back to Mr. AGN 130, and let's see where we are. All right, here's the video I talked about where you've got the far target, which is a control van, the near target, which is a straight flush. You might be able to see the straight flush rotating. Oh, wow. Bang in the door. And so the guys on the second aircraft and the number two aircraft watched that video. So, of course, they have. Note And in this clip, the far target is pretty much exploded. And now you have the near target. Now, the dish is no longer rotating because the crew is widely bailed out.
2: Bang! When I say six, toast.
1: Wow. Also, other targets that were taken. So these are these are again things that, that were up on the NATO website. So this is another way of getting BDA is uh, through some kind of overhead asset. Don't know what it is. Could be a U2. Could be a satellite. You know, could be somebody in a high altitude recce pass. Uh, those are uh, Marconi radars that were moved into an open field. They were targeted by somebody. I have no idea who. Could have been us. Could have been somebody else. The SA-2, that is the SA-2 that they trotted out and which one of our guys bagged with a uh, AGM-130. So that was in cover. But I mean, it's like this weird choice of cover, right? So it's like they knew that this thing was gonna be exploded and they wanted to be as far from anything valuable as it could be uh, because it's a lousy site for a radar to actually operate from. Um, But there you go, exploded. And, of course, if I'm not going to quote Shakespeare, maybe another bit of fine British literature. So I'll leave that up on the screen for uh, a second. But again, Strike Eagles, Cold Iron, got to love it. All right, so I'm going to bring this down. And God, I hope we're recording all this. (laughs) I hope you can get it out of the cloud.
0: So do I. I don't even know where the cloud is.
1: All right.
2: Uh, can uh, give me an option.
1: We, we can always redo this. Um, we didn't have this problem last time. No. <laughs> okay. So, you know, and I'll talk out, it, it wasn't only the AGM-130. So I got tasked twice, and I don't know whether it was luck of the draw. I got tasked twice to drop conventional ordnance, um, you know, non-AGM-130s on SA3 sites. Mm. And one of them, it was a four ship and we were retasked, and we had loaded up CBU-87 cluster bombs. CBU-87 is a crappy munition. Cluster bombs suck. There is no case I've ever seen where I or anybody in my squadron dropped a cluster bomb, or we couldn't have gotten the same or better effects with an airburst general purpose munition. Um, There's a high dud rate. It's just, they're a nightmare. And um, the whole conventional weapons agreements, get rid of cluster bombs, notwithstanding, cluster bombs suck. And I hated them when we had a load, each Strike Eagle had six CBUs and we got retasked because we were gonna drop on some airfield. We got retasked before takeoff. And um, I can't remember, oh, I must've gotten handed the, the imagery uh, beforehand. So the brief was interrupted and our acting opso, some dude, some old guy, that was just filling the space, who I'm not going to name because it still fucking pisses me off, won't let me grab a spare airplane with appropriate ordnance. So the spares had a mix of GBU-12s and CBU-87. Three on one side, four on the other side. That's what I needed to kill a Sam. No, he didn't want to mess up the 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 flying schedule and use a spare with the right ordnance. So I had to take off with the whole rest of the flight CBU-87s. Now, the Strike Eagle is, in many respects, inadequately tested. Okay? Your Strike Eagle guys have talked about that before. It's true. Um, and part of that is that enough weapons drops weren't good to have a good ballistic model for the CBU-87s. There were a lot of words of mouth, put in this correction, put in that correction. We went in, we found an SA-3 site at Mataruska, Banya. We dropped, everybody dropped six cans of CBU, and they all fall short of the radar.
0: Twenty so 24 in total.
1: 24 cans and we missed the freaking radar. The stuff went short or long, and I and I call the mission unsuccessful, and I turn the tapes over to Intel and they do their BDA thing and they say, No, you got it. And it's like, no, 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 we missed the radar. Said, yeah, but you got everything else. The only thing you missed was a radar. A bunch of cans of CBU 87 went across the control van and the vehicles and all that stuff. We're calling that a kill. I do not call that a kill. When I say I've got two and a half Sams, you know, all of which are really shared, that's the half because I did not get that radar. And I am pissed off about that to this day because the guy up front uh, is the same guy in the photo that's behind your cranium right now, Russ Lee, call sign Ug, Ug Lee. And we'd have had that guy cold. We'd have had that Sam cold if we just had the spare aircraft. And uh, older and smarter me would have said, fuck it. I would have declared something wrong with the ordinance on the CBU-87 and I would have stepped to the spare. Or even smarter, I'd have said, I get the right ordinance or I'm scrubbing the mission, which I have done before. I did it in Allied Force and other crew members did it in Allied Force. I once saw the the wing commander, Dan Leaf, General Dan Leaf, Um, hugely supportive guy, uh, mass brief on everything. He said, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen the mission scrubbed." Scrubbed it after the mass brief. So guys did it. You know, guys did it when they were tasked with the wrong ordinance against the wrong target. So I'm not bringing the wrong ordinance. I don't care what CNN shows. We're scrubbing it. Never heard another word about those kind of missions. There's another story about one I didn't scrub and should have, but that's for another time.
0: We're lining them up.
1: Lining them up. All right, so the other Sam uh, situation was we had a four ship tasked against something like a bridge. And I hadn't gotten my bridge yet. So I'm really pumped about a bridge. And two of the four ship gets tasked to go against an SA-3 someplace else. So we've got GBU-10s on board. Um, so 2,000 pound laser guided bombs. We each got a pair of them. And I asked the standard questions. Is there gonna be seed support? Are there gonna be harm shooters? Are they gonna be jamming? I got the, yeah, yeah, they'll all be there. So we split the two ship in half. Two of the guys go to the original targets. We go to a Sam and, and I'm on the wing aircraft. So in the lead aircraft is um, Croc Lundy, who's an ex Weasel guy in the back seat, uh, and up front um, is Wardo Sieverts. Okay, Wardo Sieverts was probably the most combat-experienced aviator in the Air Force at the time. One Elevens uh, in the Strike Eagles, you know, had been everywhere. There'd been a fight, uh, and so he was in the lead. And in the the wing was uh, me and Shooter Wyatt. Now. This is where I'm on the wing, right? So I'm not doing mission commander. I don't have flight leader responsibilities. As an instructor, I was tasked to keep an eye on Shooter because he was a first lieutenant. One of the two best first lieutenants I ever flew with, the other being Fifi Malakowski. And I didn't tell anybody that Shooter was a freaking stud, although you did have to restrain him. You know, he once suggested that we strafe a spotlight, and I vetoed that in flight. <laughs> But Shooter was, I mean, he, great pilot. I didn't tell anybody he was a great pilot. Why should I tell them that I don't need to be supervising this guy? Because he's everything I need in a pilot and um, he's aggressive and he's competent and he's really good at his job. And we're flying on the wing and we have no additional responsibilities but know where the flight lead is and make our target explode. This is one of those cases. So we're screaming in, there's no seed support. There's no harm shot. There is no jamming, okay? We have been fed a line of crap, and we have two strike goals smoking in at um, 20-something thousand feet at Mach 1.2 with laser-guided bombs on board because you can release a GBU-10 supersonic. And so I expect us to action, to split and come in in two different directions, a split butterfly attack, and we're waiting for the flight needed to call action, and he doesn't call action. We have no sight of the target. We've radar imaged and the radar image matched the image we got beforehand because we actually got a radar image before and a little arrow saying this is where the low blow is. So I get that radar picture. They match. I designate the target where the low blow is. But we've got a deck of clouds from us at 20 something thousand feet all the way down to the surface. We're smoking in at Mach 1.2, hoping we get a break in the clouds. We don't get a break in the clouds. Can we guide the bombs? No, we can't are we going to bring them home? Absolutely not. So we roll inverted and go into a 20 degree dive to put even more smash on the bombs to tighten up the, so you're reducing the, the time of fall, which means you're reducing the time the winds have to take effect on the bombs. We're already supersonic level, okay? Now we put the nose, we go upside down, we pull, and from our flight leads perspective, his wingman rolled over and disappeared in the clouds, <laughs> okay? And we hadn't split. So we were still 9,000 feet lined abreast. He sees this happen. They release their bombs in a level delivery and start to turn and we release our bombs in a dive. And we come off, we pop up above the clouds and we egress. You know, never a hint on the radar warning gear. We're out of there. We have not been below the mock for some substantial amount of time. <laughs> and i don't even think we find a tanker we just go home and and who knows what happened release the bomb stupid yeah. and you know i had almost busted a check ride 8 months before this that's another story i need to tell you about my combat check ride but that's not this sortie so we'd almost busted a check ride because we had briefed a complex plan we were going to release simulated gbu 10s but if the clouds were bad we were going to release simulated mark 84s we had to switch in the middle of the attack i didn't switch in the middle of the attack i released my gbu 10s simulated stupid simulated through the weather i'd have probably busted if the evaluator hadn't made the same mistake at the same time for the same reason so he could hardly bust me on the check ride so we said no it's not realistic for us to release gbu 10 stupid through the weather So we get BDA a couple days later. And the spot where the radar was supposed to be is nothing but a crater with ray traces of shattered metal going out in each direction. And so there are three craters. And there is this one shallow crater with a weapon clearly fused on something made of metal above the ground where the analysts thought beforehand that there was the low blow radar. So that I count as a kill. And we think it was our bomb because our two bomb impact points were closer together than the other two Mm -hmm. that matched our heading. So if you're in a dive, you know, and you're releasing, your timing is uh, like 100 milliseconds apart. Your two bombs are going to impact closer together than if you're level. So we're pretty certain it was our first of two bombs. It sailed down with whatever winds didn't hit it screamed down out of the, the bozo sphere, landed on top of a low blow radar infused. Don't know the answer. Claim it anyway.
0: Did you keep video of that?
1: So, um no, because I didn't take video of a radar designation. I mean, why would you do that? It's boring. I mean, I, you don't see anything. explode. It's like, oh, yeah, I designated this bunch of white freaking speckles and I'm going to save this on videotape. No, dumbass move. But that is not included in my greatest hits tapes.
0: But what about the HUD video? I mean, that would, that would have made for good viewing, wouldn't it? You know, sort of the, this supersonic dive down through the cloud.
1: Yes, where you see a bunch of white stuff and you see green lines on front of white clouds and you go, no, I definitely didn't want to keep that around. You know, because in retrospect, you don't want anybody to say, what were you thinking? It's like, yeah. I was thinking we'd made it this far. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not like Shooter and I coordinated this. Shooter just picked the best possible roll-in, 20-degree dive. I'm I'm jiggy with that. We're already screwed if we're engaged. So um, <laughs> it gets to the bomb, the bombs to the surface quicker anyway. So, yeah, it all made sense. It makes sense now. Glad we did it. It was fun.
0: <laughs> so there was a lot of... Um... I I don't know. I suppose the the nature of time-sensitive target is targeting is that it isn't necessarily pre-planned. I I suppose you must go out knowing, having some idea as to what you might be doing, where there's been activity, what you're expecting perhaps to see. But it sounds like it was very dynamic.
1: I had we we shooter had to shut down the left engine. We had to be handed the imagery over by an intel dude that came up to me and handed me a bunch of paper. Which I then took in the cockpit and we restarted the left engine for this particular strike. Wow. Um, and that was, you know, it, 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 um, it, we, not because we didn't know that we were going to go against, we didn't have the data when we were tasked. Cause remember, we, you know, coordinated, hey, you're going to have seed. Yeah, you're going to have seed. Okay. You know, get us the stuff when you're ready. We got the stuff and off we went. No seed, no coordination. It was like, just, just go do your thing. So, um, yeah, among the many lies that you know we were told, like, yeah, we're going to take care of the interceptor operations center, you know, prior to day one, we never even found out where those buildings were.
2: Really?
1: Um, Yeah, we they spent a lot of time having senior officers saying, yeah, we got that covered, and that being a a line of bull. That's for another episode when I talk about how not to run an air campaign.
0: Well, we'll, hopefully, we'll be running, we'll be having that conversation as part of a conversation around Ukraine and uh Russian successes or or lack of success.
1: A how not to run an air campaign um when you don't know how, it, which is different from how not to run an air campaign when you should know better. Okay, so um I'm gonna show a video uh and then hopefully turn things back over to you for the follow-on questions if you if you're amenable to that.
0: Okay, let's do it.
1: Okay, so this is what we call a greatest hits tape.
2: What the hell are we supposed to use, man? Harsh language?
1: So we had, uh, after Allied Forest, there was this dude from the Congressional Research Service that was posturing himself as a seed expert, and he claimed that the, uh, you know, Air Force only got two SAM kills. So I put that video together, not only with the history, but that's why you have labels of Fry, number seven, and so on. That's because, you know, I, I was showing up at conferences with him, and this video was built... Um, just to undermine his limited competence and uh, show that he was feeding a line of BS <laughs> that Strike Eagles alone had killed several times more than two Sams. Uh, not to mention all the Mig parts that we distributed, uh, Mig 21 and Mig 29s caught on the ground.
0: So that is a, that's a very impressive and uh, particularly um, visual representation then of the successes that the Strike Eagle had in hunting Sams. Um, over the former Republic of Yugoslavia, where does that sit then in the overall seed stroke deed picture of things like deny flight and ally force? And I mean, deny flight was a no-fly no, no fly zone, but it presumably had some kind of, um, well, weasel component to it or, or deed seed component to it. What were the Navy doing? What was the Marine Corps doing? The Brits had alarm, the uh, air-launched anti-radiation missile. Were they part of the picture? Where does that strike component that you've just shown us and talked us about fit into the overall picture?
1: So when we went to uh, Allied Force, okay, which is 1999, um, the other seed participants were, of course, I mean, the, the Navy and Marine Corps showed up with a bunch of Prowler squadrons at Aviana. And they had been operating at Aviano for years. Uh, it was, you know, a home away from home. And by that time, I'm not sure if they were dedicated land-based uh, Navy Prowler Squadrons, but certainly all the, the Marine Corps Prowler Squadrons, the four active squadrons were at Cherry Point, North Carolina. So we saw those guys, and I mean, we definitely had Marines and Navy there. We also had, as participants, the Tornado ECRs. Um, The Italians have ECR tornados as well, but the Italians really didn't play with them in this particular conflict. And we did have, in theory, RAF tornados with alarm, but I never heard a hint of that. was never involved in any planning in which any alarm shot was planned to be taken. Um, So I'm not sure how that worked. Uh, None of the French aircraft uh, brought arms along that I'm aware of at least not on the packages, you know, the NATO packages I was flying and planning with. Um, and the, the Luftwaffe tornados were an embarrassment.
2: Really?
1: Uh, because they had inadequate night training because the impact of the peace dividend on the U.S. Air Force was significant. Like, for example, when you look at the Balkans, most of the F-16 and strike-heel guys, their first live drop was a combat drop. That should never have happened. We should never have been put in that position. The B-52 uh, uh, have nap shots, which failed, were failed because a line of code had been changed and literally a decimal point had been misplaced by one spot and both shots failed right. uh, because they had not fired them in the interim as a training shot. No training shots were taken. Uh, The GBU-24s, we stopped using GBU-24s early in the war because they were missing. Why? Because there were some ambiguities in the tech order and some incomplete uh, test data in the charts, and those were not corrected. And we did not find out the operational impact of that because we weren't given GBU-24s to drop. So the impact of the peace dividend was bad enough on the U.S. Air Force. It was horrible on the Luftwaffe because they didn't fly at night and they were really not capable of night flying. Uh, You just can't put a guy who doesn't do night flying at all and put them in night combat operations with a NATO strike package and expect things to go well. So I saw them like on night two and literally I never had a Tornado ECR as part of another package, Um, you know. So we had Vipers and we had two flavors of Prowler uh, and they, we were all, familiar with each other's operations and we're all smart planners and when so the the f-16s got to plan the first night nato strikes okay because it was their base and the f 15 es got to plan the second night so i flew on the second night and cowboy hughes and i had planned the strike in oberville which turned out to be the second most heavily defended uh point outside the capital but we didn't know that then and we were fairly certain we were going to lose a dude or a pair of dudes, and we pulled every freaking trick, and everybody else in our strike package pulled every trick out, and those tricks worked. So again, it came down to crews. You had a bunch of experienced crews. We had been prepared for this by operations in Iraq, and we flew directly into them. We were knowledgeable. We were proficient. Uh, We had some genuine tactical geniuses, and it worked out for us
0: you uh, are obviously cautious about sharing anything that isn't um t- too sensitive but can you give an example of a trick then i mean presumably once you've pulled it once you can't repeat it too many other times just like the aim 7h shot you were talking about but what what would an example be
1: attack axes so um when we went into Oberva, we had the right hook and the left hook okay so. Um, there's a couple of rules where you don't want everybody to fly the same track over the target. There's also a rule is that I will not make a third pass on a target for anybody. Two passes is all you get. One pass, the next pass, and then I'm gone. People that make third passes get shot down because you've given the gunners plenty of time to adjust. Um, and again, that was something you saw with Strike Eagle losses in uh, Desert Storm is it's not the first guy through the target area that's getting bagged. It's the guys that are flying a similar route. So in the case of Oberba, you know, one of the tricks was is we actually had our prowlers set up to protect us from two attack axes. And so we went right, right, left, right, left, left, uh, on the approaches and with different flight sizes, two ships or four ships or so on. Uh, you know, that's one of those things. We had our seed divided. So we had guys up near the front. And we had guys in the back. So the guys in the back um, were our, you know, we can get a harm off on. They're still essentially ingressing and they're protecting from behind with a high speed uh, weapon. So those are the kind of things where we're pulling out of the bag.
0: How did you classify your contribution then? Because we, we've we talked a lot about DEED, the destruction of those enemy air defences, through association, did the uh, Serbians come to look at strike eagles as being a, a Sam striker, and were they wary of them in the same way as they might have been if they knew there was a, a you know, an F4G, obviously that had been retired at that point, but it had, had it been an F4G, would they have been wary of them in the same way? You know, there was talk about, in our previous interview, while we were part one or two, I can't remember which one it is, about just calling um, a, a, a shot just to get them to shut down their radars. What, what what sort of response did you get? What sort of associations did the, um, the enemy build around you?
1: I have no evidence one way or another. My suspicions are that they didn't hold the strike uh, eagles in any particular alarm, as much as they were very cautious about entire NATO strike packages. Um, and they were. And they, you know, they timed us. They knew when we took off. They probably had a good idea of what ordnance we took off with. Uh, they were doing a lot of guesswork. They kept themselves moving. That didn't keep harms from landing on radars, and it didn't keep large bombs from landing on radars. So I think they had a um, a much better understanding of what NATO tactics were going to be, and they had developed their tactics to counter them. So I don't think there was any particular um fear uh or loathing in terms of cedar deed uh that was focused on any particular airframe.
0: Losses then to surface to air threats. We talked about uh Grady, talked about Dave Goldfine, talked about the F one seventeen shoot down. Uh I'm trying to remember what else they got. I think they got a Harrier, didn't they get a British Harrier? A Royal Navy Sea Harrier? Okay.
1: Shoulder-launched missile. I have a database of every NATO aircraft lost to hostile fire since the Falklands War. Um, so that was much earlier. That was deliberate force. It was kind of a, a peacekeeping effort in which a Harrier was bagged by a shoulder-launched missile. So much earlier.
0: So, so, so applying then the conversation, a conversational topic, which is what happened, you know, in the, what the Wild Weasel story, part three was the air force's decision then in the mid 90s to get
2: rid of the EF111 and the F4G validated or was it proven to be um, actually something that
0: didn't materially impact the, the progress or the ability for uh, NATO organisations to go out and a- apply you know war fighting pressure to uh, an opponent
1: I think it was validated on the surface, and it was invalid if you actually took a look at what happened. So, again, like Desert Storm, you can say, hey, our 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 strategic attack theory worked, but again, you had a major coalition that completely surrounded a second-rate military um, and beat up on them. Well, in Serbia, you had the entire NATO force, which for 78 days engaged in an extended vandalism campaign against. Uh, a country, a portion of a country. Um, and you could come out saying that was a great victory, but it, it took 78 days. And even by May, we were out of targets. I only got one virgin target in the entire month of May. So if you looked at it and said, yeah, we were, you know, we were big air defense suppression heroes against a mobile air defense. We didn't get everything that was out there. We did not suppress things in the first three days. There were as many missiles fired at us on the last night as the first night. Um, And there was some third pass buffoonery on a couple of the last nights where guys learn why you don't make a third pass on the defended target. And so you could come away with the impression, but realize the deck was so heavily stacked in NATO's favor. And in an attrition situation, NATO simply outlasted Serbia. And so you say, yeah, that was worth taking a risk without saying, wow, we had some major problems and holes. And there are things that we did not do. And that our success in Desert Storm was not replicated by the equipment we had. So there's what we got out of it, which was. You might as well put another set of laurels on top of your cranium to rest on. And what you should have gotten out of it, which was we had lost a significant amount of capability. We made up for it with training. There is a different path we need to take. We need to continue to fly more hours. We need to take pay more attention to electronic warfare. The Air Force did not draw any of those lessons. They draw superficial PowerPoint Mm -hmm. level, you know, generals brief each other and get a, you know, uh testify on the hill and say how studly we were. But there's a a book called Winning Ugly about the Kosovo War, uh, which should, you know, disabuse you of any idea you had that um NATO had its act together and this was all part of a grand plan. NATO bumbled its way to victory. Hmm. Which is another episode.
0: Well that's I mean we're sort of drawing to a close, but I I, I suppose the thing that sticks in my mind then is that four years or so later, you know, March 2003, which is about four or so years later, Operation Iraqi Freedom kicked off. And the S-16CJ, you know, has a harm harm shooter, and I think Navy Hornets as harm shooters, and and even the Prowler could be a harm shooter too, can't it? So all of those combined to go in and take on the Iraqi IADs as it stood at that point in time, and I'm wondering whether or not that was a more serious threat then. So, so in the four years that intervened between you ending deny, um, Allied Force in 1999 and then the start of Iraqi freedom in, in 2003, whether anything changed?
1: Yeah. So during that whole time frame, that entire time frame from the end of 98 till the beginning of OIF, Strike Eagles and other aircraft were pounding elements of the Iraqi air defense to the point where we finally ran out of targets to hit and started hitting the communications networks because they supported the air defense. There was a four year defense suppression campaign done by guys with non anti radiation gear before OIF kicked off. There was no air defense to mention. Hmm
0: what did, what did that look like then so you were doing what sort of six week rotations in into the the sandbox and 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 then and then back for six months or what
1: in iraq and southern iraq you would do your rotations you would drop a bunch of bombs you would blow a bunch of stuff up it was all part of a deliberate campaign to make sure the air defenses were never reconstituted so um and that was that. That wasn't a plan for OIF. That was the natural evolution of having allowed air defenses to be reconstituted between 1990 and 1994, and then General Deptula starting the ball rolling in northern Iraq on his own, and saying this is what air power can do, and the squadrons. And this was this was kind of a grassroots air campaign. It's weird. The squadrons just took the existing ROE and started killing things. The northern Iraq example was then moved over to southern Iraq. And over four years, subsequent rotations just made sure that the air defense was down, was going to stay down.
0: So I thought, so when, you know, we obviously did the video, the the Mosul SA-3 strike. I thought that was just a response option. I thought, you, you talked earlier about the change of ROE. So if they shoot at you, you can now shoot back at any component within the IADS. I didn't realize that you were proactively going out and striking stuff. I thought you were only striking as response options when somebody shot at you. But 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 I'm wrong then. You are actually going You're out.
1: right and wrong. So it was kind of the reactive thing, but the Iraqis kept shooting at us. And once you said <sighs> that any shot values a response, and it doesn't have to be the thing that actually shot at you, somebody takes an artillery piece, you get a couple of gun flashes, bang, bobs on your pre-planned target. Okay. So, um, and they were dumb that way. They kept taking shots. You know, they they would put 122 millimeter rockets on launchers and we named them a ringback and they would fire them in the air. No chance of anything happened, but it's a shot. It means that we're <laughs> going to take another Lego and we're going to smash it with a hammer. And at the end of the day, you have no Legos left.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. So that's that makes sense. All right. I understand that. So, So none of this then really is representative of a peer adversary. So if you you already said that it was a, you know, going out and, and um, flying against you know, sort of Serbian forces, they were a secondary army, military, let's say, the same you would argue probably of the Iraqis. They might have had some good kit, um, but they probably weren't that great as operators um, and they were technically in any case inferior to the, to the West in terms of, you know, the capabilities of their gear. How does the Air Force then allow that situation to go unaddressed or unchanged? Why does nobody, maybe somebody's saying, well, wait a minute, it's good that we've done well in this conflict or in this limited action or in this war. But it's not really representative of what would happen if we went up against China or Russia. And so we must be Taking action to make sure that against a peer adversary, we will still be able to win. We'll still be able to to triumph. How does that situation then not occur? How how is it that the chief of staff of the Air Force at a given point in time isn't having those conversations?
1: Um so we have conversations like that at WebTax, but they don't drive funding and they don't drive programs. Um, and so there, there's the military-industrial complex, which is going to serve whatever makes the most money at the time. And as long as the American focus was on counterinsurgency and close air support, make no mistake about it, we got really good across the board at close air support. And that's what we did, but we also did stupid stuff like when winged JDAMs came out, the Air Force didn't buy them. Other country the Australians were flight testing them. They were working like a champ. It's a Boeing Australian product. Okay, Air Force, wing, JDAMs, who cares? Um, so we get a small diameter bomb. What do we use it for? For close air support. Doesn't work well, we pull it off the line, and then we put it back in later after we, we figure some other stuff out. We focus on the short-term thing. So we basically focus on the things that are gonna get a general officer fired. And the the U.S. Air Force doesn't build strategists. We build air power apologists, but we don't build strategists. There's no strategy career path. You don't get to be a geo because you're a strategist, um, other than the ability to, you know, take credit for other people's work or whatever else gets you to the star. And don't get me wrong. There are some really talented folks with stars on. Um, but those really t- talented folks might not be good strategists. Um, I think those are very rare. And so you can say a chief after staff, chief of staff after chief of staff say, we've got the best air force in the world. We've got the, well, what does best mean? Well, how did you test that? Did you test it against, against a bunch of, you know, RPG waving dudes uh, in Afghanistan? Or did you test it against the Chinese? The Chinese do the same thing. You know, their, their view is that they're going to prevail because their fighting forces are morally superior. That's great. But you haven't fought a major war since Korea. How do you think that's going to turn out? You know, moral superiority is going to, is going to do you jack just like it did you jack in Korea the first time um, if your forces aren't appropriately trained and equipped for the, the battle you're in. And then institutionally, and this is across the board, countries are very bad at predicting the next war. I mean, we didn't predict Desert Storm. We applied an air land battle model designed for fighting the Soviets in Central Europe against a Soviet client state and it worked like a champ. And now we think we're freaking studs. We're not studs. We just happen to have the right adversary appear at the right time. Um, how do you predict the next war? Uh, you know, how does a war uh, from China look like? Does it look like an invasion of, of Taiwan? Does it look like an invasion of Vietnam? I mean, does it look like seizing some violence to the Japanese? What happens? Well, I can tell you that most likely, like many wars, you're going to get into it through a series of miscalculations. And you're not going to end up in the war you thought you were going to end up. So you've got two levels of misprediction, the long term look and the short term look. And if you look at history, recent history, Nobody gets into the war they expected. Didn't happen in the Falklands. Didn't happen in Iraq. Didn't happen in Afghanistan. Didn't happen in Iraq again. Um, you know, the Balkans didn't go the way we thought. Ukraine's not going the way that the Russians thought it was going to go. Um, a fight over Nagorno-Karabakh. A lot of people didn't predict that. The Syrian Civil War. You know, who predicted how that was going to turn out? It's tough. Um, and yes. if you don't build people to look at it, then it's tough to shape your force.
0: So, so this goes. The, my my final question will wrap up. But my final question, then, because there's, you know, you're going to be on about another dozen times at least to tell us all these stories that you keep dangling in front of us. Um, but so, 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 what do? You, how do you mitigate against that? Then it goes back to, I suppose, what you were just describing. You know, an hour or so ago about, you know, the real strength lies in the people rather than the technology. You've just talked about how China may have some you know um, sense of superiority but it doesn't actually have any combat experience it doesn't have any combat pro- proven troops or pilots or you know naval commanders or whatever how do you, how do you mitigate against the fact you don't know what war you're going to be fighting where is the balance between just saying look just technologically we're going to be shit hot we're gonna make sure that we can defeat, whether it's electronically, kinematically, through cyber warfare, whatever the domain is, we can defeat what the things that we know about. Um, and then and actually knowing what that's gonna look like.
1: So I wrote an article on this at Naval Institute proceedings called We Were Well Trained Once and Young. And um, it's probably behind a paywall, unfortunately, but who knows? So you train well and realistically. You have to spend the money in readiness across the board. You have to spend your money on the people, the flyers, the maintainers, your ammo troops, your weapons guys, your intel folks. You have to keep that enterprise well-trained. You have to exercise them realistically. You have to source them with spare parts, and you have to pay attention to the nuts and bolts of your day-to-day operation so that you end up with people who are Trained to operate gear that has a lot of flexibility, like the Strike Eagle, who are also mentally used to um, solving problems in a different way. And that's what you had with Strike Eagles in the 1990s. You had well trained crews in a flexible airplane that was beginning to mature, that was still adding new capabilities, um, where you got 300 flying hours a year, um, and where you did realistic training against the kind of adversaries you expected to face. All of that paid off. We have proof that it paid off. The same thing paid off in Desert Storm. Uh, in a limited extent, it paid off when we started doing a lot more exercises that were focused on close air support so that we could go into Iraq and Afghanistan and do a better job. But we, in the process of doing that, we'd lost our flexibility. So it's possible to lose, to take your eye off the ball. In that same time frame, we had cases where guys in the F-16 squadron would fly 113 hours a year
0: only only only
1: 113 that was um so the commander of the 510 uh fighter squadron at Amiano the buzzards um was explaining to me how bad his training situation got uh 2014 2015 time frame where his mm-hmm. average number of flying hours was 113 flying hours where he was using uh his own squadron's travel money to send guys to FAC A courses and developing things uh Locally, because he wasn't getting a training budget to do it otherwise.
2: Wow.
1: Uh, the the Air Force has cut people to save money for programs. That was done. You know, we cut 5,000 maintainers in the 2015-2016 timeframe. We still haven't recovered from that. Uh, as long as you continue to focus and believe that high technology grants you victory, you're setting yourself up for failure. The high technology power did not win in the Second World War. It did not win in Vietnam. Um, It did win in Desert Storm, but come on. Uh, So people, man, people are going to, wars are fought by people, for people, around people. You're, you know, there's another example, the Royal Air Force. Royal Air Force is a first-rate Air Force, and they're a first-rate Air Force eh, with second-rate equipment because the tornado is half of what a strike eagle could be um and that's one of my favorite examples of guys who are absolutely first rank you know go into battle with them anytime any place incredibly skilled um and they didn't have the best gear around
0: star baby i think on that note The retirement of the uh, tornado, by the way, was a couple of years ago. But, so you, you'll have to update it. But um, but on that note, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's been uh, an education, an enlightenment, an experience, and a joy to listen to. Sincerely, I'm being facetious, but I'm being sincere. You know that. Really appreciate you taking the time out to talk talk to us and share your wisdom with us.
1: Ah uh, yes, well I enjoy it, and you know I I realize that you know I uh, that. You have to realize that when you put one of these episodes up, you know, I'm going to listen to it and I'm going to forward it to like my friends and relatives and all my Academy buds. So hopefully secondarily, my ego is, is trying to increase your number of viewership because I look at the views and you have thousands of fans and I have Max and Caleb. So I got to kind of. Grade <laughs> it.
0: Thanks for tuning in to 10 Century. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks and take care.